This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, uh, your coach, your guide on the side. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. And also in the studio, Jeffrey Simpson, Terry South. The gang's all here. hey hey <laughs> And it's flooding in Houston. Unbelievable flooding. Uh, Terry keeps finding story after story. Apparently, if you see an alligator, yeah. leave it alone. That's what they're telling people. Stay away. Isn't that always good advice? Well, pretty much, yes. Yeah. But in this yeah. case specifically. That's what that grandma used to say. Wash up into your basement or something. Just oh. let, it, let it go. <sighs> well, frogs. We just, There's yeah. a house with some frogs in it now. I mean... Unbelievable stories. This is at least one sign of the second coming. Yeah. Two, I think. Yeah. I don't remember the alligators, though. No, alligators are... They're in there somewhere. They're in there. Okay. Frogs, uh, a rest home, a senior center with... The photo that went out of all the people in the rest home sitting in... They're sitting in couches and the water's up to chest high, so... It's unbelievable. And that photo went out, and uh, those people have been rescued yeah, they're and taken, all, they're care, taken of. care of. But initially when that went out, people were doubting that that was a real photo, and they're, like, threatening people, I'm going to report you for yeah. false, th- whatever. Fault, fake news. Yeah, or something. It was just interesting. But that was real. There were people in this rest home, and they couldn't move these people. Right. And they needed help, but all the phones are down. So people started putting out pictures on social media, but... You know, not everyone is watching your feed, so... Well, know, and then you've got hmm. some of the seniors were, like, crocheting, and yeah. everyone's like, right. But what else are they going to do? And some maybe aren't, you know, in their right mind enough or able physically enough to do anything but sit there. Those naysayers, yeah. they're anti-elderly. Mm. That's a good point. It's a really good point. And you know what's interesting, too? They're getting a lot of drone footage. So now everyone's putting their drones out there, which seems like a risky adventure because then all of a sudden you may not get your drone back. Right. But uh, drone footage out there, people are volunteering their boats to save lives. It's it's chaos. This is like a once in 500-year storm. Till it happens in like 10 years. Yeah, till it happens again because of global warming. Ah, crazy. Well, again, our prayers are with them. And uh, again, do whatever you can. Uh, to get out of the way, to do what you're supposed to do. Many are wondering why everybody, you know, why we didn't evacuate the town, why we didn't evacuate the city. But that's a big decision, and you never know how big was, how big this is going to get. I was reading the last time they had a event close to something like this. They did do an evacuation of the city, and like 10 or 15 people died trying to get out of town no, in car it. accidents. Wow. And so they're like, what are we supposed to – I mean, there's all these people. There's not enough time. It went from a Category 2 to a Category 4. Just in, a, in a, a really fast time period. So trying to get all those people out, there's not enough roads. Yeah. Oh. You just end up with people in their cars. So they decided to not have an evacuation order. Well, you're going to lose either way. Because if you don't, you can't. To be able to call something like this perfectly, it's it's impossible. And I, again, Houston, fourth largest city in the country yeah. and of, growing. A lot of people are uh, finding that out for the first time. Yeah. That the city's that big. That is a huge city. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that today. Also, we're going to be getting into um, how, you know, how school and what happens at school 
may impact how you see if school's worthwhile. So if school is really negative for you, you may feel like it's not worthwhile and you actually frame it as something that's not necessary. And we'll be talking with an expert who's been doing research on the subject about motivation and how your motivation may simply come from whether you like something, whether it's whether it's easy or hard for you. I loved school. Did you? We just took our daughters to back to school night. I was so jealous. I was looking around at all the crayons and the books and oh, the chalkboard. Really? I wow. kept thinking, I, I want to go back and do this. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, we could we could have you do some drawings during uh, the segment, the next segment. Do you want us to get you some crayons? Do you have some? Yeah. I always keep crayons in my drawer just I would in case. love that. Yeah. We'll, we'll track some down for you. God, I didn't know you'd have such a fond... Like an emotional reaction to kindergarten or preschool or what was it, preschool? Kindergarten. Kindergarten. Yeah. We wow. went to uh, back to school night with our teenage son, junior high. It was a nightmare. A lot of people. Junior high is the worst. A lot of people. There. Worst two years of your life. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. Without I that, question. You know that, that hot, scary, you know, hot flash you have when you walk into the gym mm. and you realize you're trying to talk your boy into showering. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, after gym class, you got to shower and. They're looking at you like, no, no way. <laughs> Are you crazy? I no. bet when you walked in there, you could remember, you could feel the rope burn still. Oh, yeah, totally. No, my hands started to swell up. Um, by the way, you don't, kids don't even need to shower anymore because they have Axe body spray. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, lots of Axe going on, but no smoking. Those two things cannot but, go together. Do we know what secondhand Axe body spray does to? No, that's we know the problem. Se- there's been secondhand smoke studies, but secondhand Axe body spray, the cloud of Axe oh. body spray. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. I mean, yeah. I we Just for our children's safety, we have them put on their body spray outside, hmm. outdoors. Away from the open aw- flame. Away from an open flame and away from each other. Okay. Yeah, if you're going to die. Cross-contamination would be a problem, right. too. Yeah. Oh, boy. Especially mm. when – because we have like two or three different scents. Mm. Yeah. Mountain Meadow and like minty fresh. It's just <laughs> minty not good. Fresh. New car. <laughs> new car smell. <laughs> hey, you smoke a new car. Thanks, Dad. Um, we got a lot to cover today, including empty news. We'll get to the stories that you didn't even know you needed to know with the with the Matt Townsend news team, empty news. Um, also, we'll do some headlines of the, the information you actually do need to know. And let's start there with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we should be paying attention to? Houston being inundated with flooding of historic proportions after the ferocious Hurricane Harvey set in over the Texas Gulf Coast this weekend, dumping torrential rain on the city with no end in sight for days. The massive amount of flooding comes after the storm, which now has left five dead, bashed the Texas coast, leaving buildings and parts of communities submerged. In Houston, there were more than 1,000, you're saying 2,000 calls over the weekend. Wow. Just to get people yeah. rescued out of their house. And, uh, again, the criticism on whether they should have evacuated or not. Houston, I mean, we, how many estimated billion gallons of water were you saying? 11 trillion yeah. gallons That's of water. That's just rain. So now we've backed up all the reservoirs. So they need to be opened or they're going to overflow, which now is going to flood the areas again. And they were suspect when it came to some infrastructure issues with those wow. reservoirs. So nearly 15% of the U.S. oil refinery capacity has been knocked out by flooding from Hurricane Harvey on there on the Gulf Coast. 
raising gas prices and, you know, futures, because that's how that works. Authorities in Dallas are turning to the city's main convention center into a mega shelter to accommodate thousands of Texans forced to evacuate their homes amid the hurricane's unprecedented flooding. The shelter will reportedly be able to host as many as 5,000 evacuees, with county officials, charity groups, and local hospitals aiming to have the center open by Tuesday morning. San Antonio, I heard, it was going to open a uh, facility there mm. for evacuees. So, Wow. Just trying to move people out of the region yeah. until the water backs off and then go back in. Got to do what you can. Organizers have confirmed that a 10-day march from Charlottesville to D.C. protesting white supremacy will begin Monday. Participants will march more than 100 miles over 10 days, logging roughly 17 miles a day, and stay in churches along the planned route. Because we know that this is a very dangerous moment in our nation's history, a moment that requires action. Marchers, uh, organizers said in a press release, coordinated by a number of activist groups, according to the march's website, peaceful demonstrations described as wave after wave of nonviolent civil disobedience will begin when participants arrive in D.C. September 6th. Wow. So just plan accordingly. There's going to be people on the road. Okay, good, all right. Good Do you want to walk to D.C.? No. Okay, well. No. I mean, it's an option. Yeah. It's one thing you could do. It's one thing you could do. Uh, apparently, the older we get, the more of us there are who don't like our jobs, at least according to a new survey of more than 2,000 employees in the UK. At age 35 seems to be a tipping point. The number of those who are unhappy at work more than doubles from before age 35 to after, hitting one sixth, one in six after age 35. Things get worse for respondents after age 55, with a third saying they feel unappreciated at work and a sixth saying they don't have any friends at work. Wow. There comes a time when you either you haven't achieved success, work has burned you out, or lived experience tells you that family is more important, one workplace researcher says. You ask yourself, what am I doing this for? But in this one survey, doesn't mean it's all bad. Fortune reports on a separate survey that workers in their later stages of their career say their skills are aligned with their work and they have more influence and freedom on the job. So some people are saying they're not happy because they just don't have any friends. I don't want to do this anymore. Other people feel more fulfilled. Yeah, because their skills are right, right in line with what needs right. to happen. You got to find. Yeah, you got to find your passion. And then finally, it says for those who are unhappy on the job, one expert recommends making an effort to befriend coworkers and refocus on work a work project that can become passion. So go. if your work means something, or if you have a friend at work, yeah. you want to go to work. So yeah. does that include like building a bed under your desk? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a work project. No, totally. And I'm totally passionate about it. All right. I didn't build. I just, I, I just, it appeared. <laughs> Voila, a bed. I looked under my desk and I'm like, ah, I could fit there. <laughs> and finally, Matt Aristotle Burns is the best when it comes to pretending to play guitar. Who? Aristotle Burns? Aristotle Burns. The American successfully defended his title at the 22nd Air Air Guitar World Championships in Finland on Friday after competing in the finals against 15 contestants from South Korea, Pakistan, Sweden, Britain, Canada, and other countries. Burns of Staten Island finished ahead of the runner-up Patrick Earwolf Kulik of Germany and Alexander the Jinja Assassin of Australia, who tied for second place. The Jinja or Ninja? Jinja Assassin. J-I-N-J-A. Uh, Japan's Neat. 15-year-old Shosho plays third, reports yeah. AP. A heavy metal version of I Will Survive helped Burns romp away with the win. Man. In air mm. guitar. That's good talent, though. Skill. I think the, the air guitar is one of the hardest air instruments to play. Is it? Yeah. It's kind of a wind instrument. But you have to you have to use you have to move your arm a lot. Mm. 
and you're you got to throw your body around. I mean, the air piccolo, much easier. Not as popular though. Not as popular. Very rare, but um, you know, you don't have to move as much. You can. If you're so inclined. So what involves more talent or what what takes more talent, air guitar or lip syncing? Oh, for sure, lip syncing. Really? Yeah. Because it's your mouth, right? And you've Still got to the look. same amount of noise being made, though. Right. It's not about the outcome. It's about how well you can sell. I don't know. It just seems harder to sell. Isn't it just impressionist dance at some point? Yeah. But on sync... In sync, that's a great one. Well, too. couldn't your speaking of, speaking of uh, lip sync? Couldn't your message to your audience of being out of sync and that be the message? Is you're not in sync with the song? Yeah, but then you're just a farce. You're a joke. Hmm. You know. I mean, I mean, this is art. It could be the message is that you are a joke. Yeah. Yeah. No. That wouldn't fly. I okay. wouldn't say art. It's not art. No. It's dancing. It's something. No? It's air guitar. I think it's a quality activity, something the whole family can enjoy. Yeah. It's, have you guys ever played um, muted karaoke? No. Every day of my life. You just don't. You just mute the sound, but then you do, your, you do karaoke. Oh. So you just lip sync. I do it the other way. But I, nobody I, knows I, what you're lip syncing I do. listen to music. And then they have to guess. I listen to music with no sound coming from me. Oh. That's reverse karaoke. And we appreciate that. It, I think everyone is. <laughs> Did you hear about this lady that went into the emergency room in Bethesda, uh, in Ohio, no, at Liberty Township, Ohio, Bethesda Butler Hospital? She signed in at the reception desk. They put a little tag on her wrist. She was having pain. Then she sat there for 45 minutes. Then the pain subsided. Hmm. So she just, I guess, walked out. And she said, I'm not going to sit here. The pain's gone. So right. walked out. And she got a bill for $1,000. Because she sat <gasps> in the waiting room? For sitting in the waiting room. Wow. For sitting in their chair in the waiting room. And I never saw anybody, she said. Yeah. She needs to fight it. We're getting a bunch of refunds because we paid our doctor bill ahead of time, but our doctor didn't deliver the baby. So we got that money back. Man. We got like a $3,000 labor charge. But my wife didn't labor at the hospital. No, she labored in the taxi. So we are going to get that refunded as are well. Are you going to pay the taxi driver? I was the taxi driver. W- was it of the our Solara? No, no, no. Oh, okay, good. Good. Was, was there her that's, car? That's leather seats. In yeah, there, I was going to so say do that. <laughs> you don't want to ruin those leather seats. <laughs> it was that's her so car, sad. but uh, yeah, no uh, mess. Okay, okay, good. So you may you you actually you may make you may make money on this baby. <laughs> See, you should write a book. That's the trick. How do you have a kid and make money? How to make money <laughs> birthing kids. Yeah. Well, one way is you always do it in the lobby, in the pre-lobby. That's really what it is. You do as much work as you possibly can. Yeah. That's it's, a, it's like home improvement. Do as much as you can. You you do the painting, yeah, all yeah. that. You'll save some money. I thought you meant the show there for a second. No. Well, I was about you. to go, Whoa? <laughs> Um Before we leave, let's do a little empty news, Jeffrey. Uh, uh, is it is it true that I mean is Chewbacca back? Apparently, people are finding seeing. He might Chewbacca. be. I mean, the actor who uh, actually he's not dead. He's just not going to be in the movies anymore. He just retired. So uh, there's this guy dressed as Chewbacca, and he's being charged for bashing a ski resort worker 
at the weekend at or on the weekend at Threadbow, an alpine village and ski resort in the snowy mountains of southeastern Australia. Police say the 51-year-old was dressed in a Star Wars costume and hit a staff member with a snowboard Ooh. multiple times. Wow. The 55-year-old victim was left with facial and dental injuries. Chewy was arrested and charged with using an offensive weapon to commit an indictable offense. Chewy says he was originally told he could... <laughs> That's your impression? I don't know, okay. Chewy. I can't make his... Sound. So this guy was told that he could wear the, the costume at the resort, but he became violent when the staff member said... He could not. Ah, okay? Yeah. So that's one crime that was committed wearing a costume. Right. Here's another. Even though Halloween is still more than two months away, uh, it didn't deter three people from donning costumes to shoplift at a southeastern Pennsylvania Walmart. And uh, the police said that one man was dressed as a bull, another donned as a werewolf, <laughs> or uh, he donned a werewolf costume, and the third was disguised as a gorilla when they stole more than $561 in merchandise from Walmart around 1 p.m. Wow. All three were charged with retail theft and conspiracy, while Werewolf and Gorilla Face added charges of fleeing to avoid apprehension. Uh, Yeah. Speaking of tacking on charges, when you commit a crime... Those they just start tacking them on left and right. It's like like, it's, it's oh, like an you, insurance company. You're running away. On a yeah. delivery charge. Yeah. You're running away. That's another charge. Busted. Got it. Oh, you, oh, you didn't tie your shoes. Uh-huh. That's another charge. Oh, sm- talking smack to a cop. <laughs> the smack charge to you. By the way, I would want to be the gorilla. Really? If we're choosing costumes to rob anything, I, I choose the gorilla. Oh, I go werewolf. Well, then that makes that makes Terry's the bull. Quite fitting. That's about right. Yeah. Quite fitting on that one. But, you know, the good news is, for these crooks anyway, that uh, the next time they want to pull something off like this, there's a place they can go. Right. And a lot of people don't know about it. They're one of our sponsors. They're one of the great sponsors of our show. Are you planning to rob a convenience store but are stumped about what to wear? As every crook knows, you only have one chance, approximately four and a half minutes, to make a first impression. So make it a good one, and buy your next disguise at the Crook Closet, the only store where criminals can find the outfits they need to feel more confident on the job. Come in now and choose from some of our more popular disguises, such as Chewbacca, Deadpool, and the timely Donald Trump mask. Not only will they keep your identity safe, but they also make great conversation starters. So while you're breaking the law, you'll have the perfect outfit to break the ice. The Crook Closet, the store where you can shop first and ask questions later. Have you ever lacked the motivation to go to the gym, go to work, or to clean your house? Or at some point, you know, you notice that this is a really difficult thing to do, and be, simply because it's difficult, it, you're no longer motivated to do it. You know, it's not only important to have motivation to do simple tasks or chores daily, but it's also because motivation can be a predictor of educational and professional accomplishment. Here to help us uh, talk about some research on do our challenges help or hurt our motivation is Dr. Daphna Oserman, a professor of psychology from the University of Southern California, and uh, she's here, and we're, we're honored to have you, Daphna. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So talk about um, 
Talk about how our motivation changes by the difficulty which we're facing. Um, is, that, is that true? So if I'm, if I'm doing something that's really difficult or hard to do, is it that I, I tend to become less motivated to do it simply because it's hard? Yeah, it, it turns out that um, humans are sensitively attuned to experiences of ease and difficulty. And as we go through life, of course, almost everything we do can feel easy or difficult. And we not only experience that ease or difficulty, but we often interpret it. And that interpretation can uh, influence the meaning that we make of it. So if something feels easy, one possibility is to say, oh, this, I can do this. I'm good at this. And then that increases focus, motivation, and engagement with the task. Of course, the alternative is also true. You can say, oh, not worth my time. This is trivial. This is just too easy for me. I shouldn't shift my attention to something else. I shouldn't really pay attention to this. And the same, of course, is true for difficult tasks. Difficulty can send a signal that the odds are low, decreasing certainty that this is really for you, that you should maybe perhaps not waste your time on it because you're going to fail anyway, and you should look for something that you actually can succeed in. Hmm. At the same time, of course, difficult tasks often can be a signal that this is something of value, that it's important, no pain, no gain. Is a, a, a saying that we commonly use in the, in the domain of sports. We don't really have a parallel for other important life goals, and yet we know that those things are true. It, that when you invest in something like parenting, like your career, like education, sure, it can feel very difficult at times, but the benefits over the long run can be huge. So sometimes difficulty can or should be interpreted as a signal, this is a value, this is important, I should really lean in and, and work on this. Unbelievable. That really, I mean, it kind of makes sense because then all of a sudden, um, if you're in school and you think the homework is too easy, you don't want to do it because, like, we don't even need to do this. This is just nonsense. It's trivial. But if it's too hard, then we can justify it by, like, eh. I don't know if I'll ever need this. This is this is too hard. Um, how do we is, is so is part of motivation? It's it's not to keep everything is it or is it if I'm trying to motivate another human being to 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 make it not too easy or not too hard? I think that's often a pitfall that teachers fall into. And exactly as you said, uh, you can as a student never do your homework because it's either easy, hence too easy, not yeah. worth my time, or difficult, hence really not possible for me and why should I waste my time. And so rather than trying to uh, figure out how to titrate ease and difficulty, which really in some ways um, is a bottomless pit, it can't really work if, if that's the frame that the student has, what teachers would, and parents and we are for ourselves for our own framing should think about is um, when it's easy, that means it's possible. So you know, one possibility then is to first say, well, it's easy, let me just do it. And this is often when people have um, guides for organization, they say things like, okay, one touch rule. As it comes in, just do it. It'll clean your desk. Take care of the simple things right away. Um, And that really is a framing of ease as possibility. The same is true for difficulty. Rather than first thinking, oh, you know, can I do this at all? The first thing to do is just to say, okay, This is a challenge. Let me lean in. This probably has value to me. And making that progress often is the thing of value. And if we return to the example of the student, um, when students have that is it too easy, is it too hard frame, then 
teachers will often find those will be the kids who are going to counter-argue. Well, why did you give me 12 math problems? Hmm. 12 is too many. Um, it's really easy. I got the idea after only one. Well, maybe, but that practice of just doing it as it comes in, um, practicing till it's automatic, um, not always worrying about whether it feels too easy or too hard, gives students in some ways the kind of, of sort of life skill that we all need as we engage in tasks that are actually longer, more ambiguous, more filled with uncertainty, which is what happens after it's no longer the 12 math problems, but something like, am I advancing in my career? Am I parenting properly? The kinds of things that don't really have a simple answer. Yeah. In fact, that almost sounds like... Um uh, kind of resiliency skills about, you know, like you said, lean into it. When when you when you start to notice it's a little harder than you may have wanted or expected, uh, don't just even complain about it, but just learn to be resilient. Lean in and do it. Are are the children? Are are we born this way? Are we born you know with a quick, easy uh, means possible, hard means impossible mentality, or is that is that socially constructed? How do we get that? Well, uh, because it's a reality. So if you think about, let's go back in sort of evolutionary time, and let's imagine that we are uh, scavenging for food. So, you know, the uh, ecologist often uses an example, um, birds who are looking for berries in a bush. So you're, you're flying around, and there's a clear cost to flying. You're burning calories. So you need to find food. It's not just because you feel like eating. You actually really need it. So you're, you're looking, and in that bush... You're not finding any berries. If you're not finding any berries, should you shift us to another bush, saying to yourself, okay, odds are low, if birds could talk, odds are low, better move on to something else before I fall out of the sky from you know, burning more calories than I've got? Um, or should I look more carefully? And really, both strategies could be true. Hmm. And what, what happens from an evolutionary perspective, what happens to us is that we get a, a, a chronic set point as to which to try first. So if you're in a resource-rich context, the thing you should always try first is the no pay, no gain. You know, look harder, try more. Um, if you're in a resource-poor environment, then you should be first shifting, saying, okay, probably, you know, odds are there's nothing here, move to something else. So it's not that... The, the no pain, no gain, the difficulty means importance, uh, ease means possibility frame is always the correct one. It's just that in our, in our lives, in our situations, we probably underutilize it. Hmm. And we probably overutilize the alternative, which means that we are actually missing on opportunities that had we invested more, had we really uh, engaged with, we would have reaped benefits from. So... It's not that one is the correct one and the other is the, is the incorrect one. It's that we need both because the reality is sometimes the odds are low. Sometimes we should shift to something else. But potentially that shouldn't be the first thing because investing often actually reaps more benefits than meets the eye. Yeah, interesting. Because, and, and yeah, shifting too easily, too quickly and always, yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to dig into some of the richer parts of life. Exactly. And so sometimes parents have a gut feeling for that, and they'll say to their kids who've signed up for whatever, piano, ice hockey, and then after a few weeks say, you know, this is boring. All we're doing is drills. All we're doing is, you know, scales. There's no game. There's no fun. There's no music. Parents sometimes have a gut feeling for that and say to their kids, well, stick it out. You know, let's make a deal. 
finish this, you know, this course, and then later you can decide if you've if if it's worth it. Because that initial push in the beginning, you may feel that it's all pain and no gain. So true. I, I was the whole time I was thinking about yeah, like piano lessons. Um, there is this fine line, and yet it's funny, Daphne. Most of us have never thought of it the way you're explaining to us about motivation. Is it time to move on and find another tree with with some more fruit or berries on it, or do we just need to dig deeper? But as I guess as as educators or as as anybody trying to motivate another person. Um, I, I guess we could also create conditions that make it at least appear like there's more fruit. Sure, to make it appear like there's more fruit, or or basically to to say, you know, I I need to um, potentially trust that that there might be more. And of course, there's the 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 edges of that would be if you're in a in a situation where um, you have no choice in control and your efforts are unlikely to matter. Um, then you may need to conserve your resources mm. for something else. Um, and luckily, most of us are not, you know, raising our children in those contexts. But, but in fact, the research that we've done has suggested a, a small but significant negative correlation between things like uh, poverty and um, low education, so not finishing high school, and having a higher chronic sense that when it's difficult, it means it's impossible. Yeah. And, and we're assuming that that's because the reality of context like that is such. So, you know, if you didn't finish high school, the kinds of jobs you can get um, often don't give you much choice and control. So the boss says, come today, don't come today. You, it's hard to plan for how much money you're going to have at the end of the month. It's hard to plan for when you're going to need child care, those kinds of things. So. Um, there are things that we can do that increase our odds of having choice and control. But when you are in those situations where you don't, um, just focusing on the sort of the you know when di- difficulty means importance may be may be counterproductive. Hmm. Does this does this get into the theory too of sunk cost theory where? We, you know, I've already invested all this time on this tree. I've already been looking. I don't want to give up now and not get the berry. I mean, a lot of people stay in their jobs because they've already been in their jobs 10 years. And even if it's not paying off, even if it doesn't motivate them, they they seem to still stay sometimes because of just the time they've invested. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I think, a really nice example of the opposite. So, yes, you should invest, but then at some point, um, if the investment really is not paying off, maybe at that point it, it would be useful to say, you know, the odds of things suddenly turning around are very low. So maybe I should shift to something else and I can find an, an alternative. Hmm. Where do you, where do you, um, do you see a difference in this paradigm based on income or based on opportunity? Um, does this happen at, at one, like you were, you were bringing up teenager jobs, is it different there than it might be in a, in a, a you know, more professional setting where somebody's gone through med school? Sure. So, so actually, the, the, I wasn't thinking of teenager jobs. The not finished high school uh, data, that, that's from adults. So, okay. Uh, you know, for adults, of course, most in, in the U.S., uh, most people do finish high school, but not everyone does. And failure to, to get sufficient education puts you at higher risk of being in the kinds of contexts where uh, choice and control is, um, is low. Um, interestingly, um, in, in our initial set of studies, we did find that uh, people with high education, so uh, 
you know, beyond college, beyond, uh, you know, a a BA, a a professional degree, um, are slightly more likely to uh, have as their go-to interpretation that difficulty means importance. Hmm. Um, However, that... um, we, we found that uh, when we, our first set of studies with 1,000 uh, adult participants, American adults, uh, using an Internet-based sample. Um, since then, we've done uh, follow-up studies with a few thousand more participants, and the uh, stable associations that we found, as I said, was that negative association, um, but with, particularly with income. So when you're uh, very low in income, it's easier to... Um, uh, make sense of the world in terms of odds being low. So difficulty means that the odds are low, that it might be impossible. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing that we found is that uh, subjective social status matters. So if I experience the world as being on the bottom rather than the middle or the top of the ladder, that way of making sense of the world means that I don't feel that I have much choice and control. And that feeling is associated with income and education, but it's not the same as that. So it's more like a a feeling that a person has rather than something objective about them. Hmm. As parents, do we – I mean, I I guess if I grew up in in a professional situation and I see difficulty as uh, as meaning more important, do I end up handing that down to my kids? I think there are many ways that we do that in terms of both our parenting practices and what children see uh, parents is doing. So, you know, the dinner table conversation, the way life is organized. So um, if parents really don't have much choice and control in their life and they have to hustle their children, I'm sorry, you know, I promised we were going to do this today, but I can't, got to go to work. Um, boss called me and I can't say no, mm-hmm. um, you know, that gives you this sort of sense that, that, that the, the vagaries of life, um, even, you know, even grownups can't control. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the opposite is also true. You know, parents who are able to have, have structures, be able to you know, not promise things that they, that they can't deliver, give children a sense that there is an order, that you can make these kinds of predictions, which then allows you to say, okay, you know, when it's difficult, I should, you know, my first choice might be to invest and see whether, in fact, I can get something out of it. And, of course, that is a long-term strategy. Um, in the end, often is a, is a better thing to do. Yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Daphne Osterman. She's currently a dean's professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Southern California. And we are discussing her research on do challenges help or hurt our motivation and really how we choose to uh, how we choose to move on, how we choose to stay and keep working on a project or, or a difficult task. We will continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Daphna Osterman is joining us. She's currently a dean's professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Southern California. Her research examines how small changes in context can shift our mindsets. Even something as simple or as small as something being easy 
if we see something as easy, then in our head we think possible and uh, we it might impact our motivation. Or if it's hard, we might see it as impossible. Daphna, again, thank you for your time and being with us. Thank you for having me. How do we... Um, how are some ways that we should look at this with our children as far as motivating our kids to do difficult tasks, um, but also, you know, not making sure they can also learn how to select when it's time to move on and, and, and choose a better goal or a different goal? So one of the things that we did um, in thinking about that is to say what would be, uh, particularly in school, which is where much of the research has been done, what would be the kinds of activities that a teacher could do or a parent could do, uh, for that matter, with with kids to to sort of um, give them the tools that they would feel rather than your parent telling you or your teacher telling you this is how you should think, that you would have the kinds of experiences that would structure those feelings up. And so one of the things we thought about is that for children, and, and for all of us too, but definitely during childhood, the future adulthood is actually quite far away. Yeah. And when things are far, they're less certain. That's just reality. If you think about perception, when you look at something that's very far away, you don't see it in much detail. As it gets closer, it gets more clear. You see it in more detail. So if, if the things that you are imagining for yourself in the future are far away, then they're going to be uncertain it's going to be less clear uh, how to get there, whether it'll happen, what's going to be. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's just, it's reality. Moreover, the farther things are away, the more we have to think about potential uh, choices that, we, that may differ along the way, obstacles that may occur, uh, things that may turn out differently than we had expected. And so I thought about those things and I said, well, those aren't necessarily problems, they, but they are things that we need to think about because the farther something is away, uh, the lower the probability that it will actually happen, which means that uh, a go-to prediction for things that are really far is A, that they'll be uncertain, B, that the odds may be low, and potentially they, they may not happen. There may be obstacles not of your choice along the way. And so what we, what we developed was a series of activities to help students, help teachers work with students to think about uh, that far future, but then make the future feel closer and closer by thinking about steps that can be taken right now, strategies that can be used right now, ways of imagining a timeline to the future that's not linear, like we think about when we draw a timeline about you know, discoveries in science or things like that that are about the past that has already happened. But if we think about a timeline to the future, there need to be forks in the road, so you know, choices will lead to different outcomes. And there need to be some roadblocks, some obstacles, where you think about ways around them rather than just imagining that either there won't be roadblocks, leaving you quite surprised when there are, or um, assuming that if there's a roadblock, then you should just quit. And these are ways in which, without giving a little speech saying, hey, when it's difficult, it's important, get going, Um, (laughs) which, you know, as we know, if it was that simple, um, all of us would be perfect because we deliver all sorts of speeches to ourselves in the mirror in the morning. Um, So, you know, that's really what we we have done. And, And we actually documented that that does change not only students' perceptions, but importantly, their grades, both from school records and standardized test scores over over time. The first test of this was in Detroit, and we're currently uh, following up in Chicago uh, where we've taught public school teachers to deliver these activities, and we found that, that teachers can do this, even with very brief training of just a few days, 
and can then teach the next generation of teachers so that this is sustainable over time. Is it true? Because it seems like if 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 the long distant future is kind of it's so uh, nebulous for us, we can't see with clarity. But by chunking it down into pieces, little goals that we need to do today, could we also not chunk down the activity to make it so simple that it seems doable as well? Yep, that's so, you. You exactly got it. As it, the closer it is, the more certain it is, uh, and the more doable it is. And this is probably why uh, various methods that that you know people who've thought about efficiency and so forth often talk about those things. Um, and, and really the insight here is, you know, well, why am I doing it? And once you've thought about it in that way, it's, you know, it's not just I'm doing it because it's on my plate. I'm doing it because it's a step along the way in, toward the path toward my future, toward the, the, the academic huh. or, or family or, or career goals that I have. It's, it's why I, when I ask my 22-year-old what he wants to be when he grows up, he has a lot more motivation and context than when I ask my 12-year-old and his eyes glaze over like, I don't know. That's true. I had one one colleague uh, said to me that his twelve year old son uh, told him that he always tells him that he'll you know play ball with him or do something with him tomorrow. So his twelve year old said to him, "But Dad, it's always today. It's never tomorrow." Mm. And so getting going now is is actually you know a skill that we don't always have. Yeah. What would you do to um, using the research, Daphna, that you've been working on? If I have a child, uh, let's say a teenager, a fourteen year old that is giving up on his homework too easily, and really it's something that we need to do. We need to get through this. Um, how would you go about motivating that child? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I think that the, the key thing to think about is that it's not about the homework. Sometimes we forget that uh, it's not about the homework, it's not about getting an A, it's not about finishing high school, it's not even about getting to college or finishing college. It's about uh, those things as being steps along the way toward the, the larger goals that we have in terms of having a life that um, has the, the, the profile, the characters that, that we would want, whether that is a career or family or uh, giving back to community. And, and these are really steps along the way. This, this is really uh, paving the path to get there. Mm. So uh, the homework itself, your 12-year-old is absolutely right. You know, his, his 32-year-old self won't remember or care whether he did or did not memorize the spelling words for Friday. <laughs> but... If every Friday the spelling words aren't memorized, in the end, that's a big problem. So it's, it, both things can be true at the same time. Any one moment is redoable tomorrow. The problem is, as that 12-year-old said to his dad, it's always today and never tomorrow. So it's necessary to get going now, or that tomorrow won't be what we had hoped for. Yeah. And it, um, and I guess too, and, and to become more and more resilient and more, I guess, adaptable to uh, these different situations. Otherwise, they become daunting. I mean, you could see how this this itself could induce a lot of anxiety or like decision fatigue because you don't you don't know what's important anymore. Sure. So instead of having to make those monumental decisions each time. Uh, just getting going, just thinking about it as, well, right now, this is what I need to do. Um, when you think about it, let's uh, give a different, different frame on that. Um, when you look at your, at your daily planner, whether it's on your smartphone or on paper or on, on your you know, calendar, on your refrigerator, whatever you have listed for today, that you're definitely going to do. The things that by Friday need to happen, tomorrow you can start working on them. 
So, so part of the, the, the thing that we can do for our children and for ourselves is to make distal goals feel eminent, feel close, so that today I need to start working on them. That's how we end up saving enough for retirement, for our children's college education, uh, not because we know that in, in 18 years we're going to need an enormous amount of money, which is overwhelming and hence paralyzing, but rather because today we put something aside. Hmm. Yeah. Man, you make it sound so simple, Daphna. Daphna Osterman is her name. Again, uh, Dr. Daphna Osterman is is currently a dean's professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Southern California and also uh, has written a wonderful article, uh, Do Challenges Make Schools Seem Impossible or Worthwhile? Wonderful article on theconversation.com. Again, uh, Motivation 101. It's interesting how it's it's constantly in flux and really how important it is for each and every one of us. Even as we are, you know, workers and employees, do you feel motivated? Because if not, uh, what lessons are you teaching your children about motivation? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to continue the journey. Up next, uh, we'll be doing uh, some more empty news for you, helping you uh, be the good in the world. So what do you do when somebody knocks on your door asking if they can go look on your deck or your balcony? And uh, you're like, well, yeah, why? And she says, because I lost my teeth. I'd say it's a scam. It's a scam. He's just trying to get in your house. <laughs> well, uh, Jess got some empty news where this actually took place in Germany, southern Germany. Yeah. So in southern Germany, uh, police were alerted after a man buzzed on the door and asked for permission to search this woman's balcony for for his false teeth. Yeah. Just like you said. Police reported that an interrogation of the 56-year-old man soon showed that his unusual request was sincere. He said he had visited a friend living a few floors above the woman and lost his dentures while sitting on the friend's balcony. Police say the man's dentures had fallen off the balcony and he was simply trying to track down his much-needed teeth. Well, you would think she'd be able to tell. Yeah. He's missing his teeth. Exactly, right? Like, (laughs) I'm not lying, Um, but with a German accent. Yeah. So anyway, luckily, uh, you know, what he should have done is he should have called our sponsor on this. I mean, a lot of people don't know that there are devices, there are companies out there that can help you track down your, your, uh, your dentures. We all know that for over 10 years, Diddy Dental has been improving self-esteem by giving customers grilled smiles that say, Look at me, I'd like some attention. But did you know that Diddy Dental also makes dentures? Dentures that say, Look at me, I told you I still have all my teeth. But what happens when your dentures go missing? That's where the denture accessory experts at Diddy Dental come in. Introducing the Chomper Beeper, one of the many products from the new Tooth Sleuth line by Diddy Dental. All of Diddy Dental's dentures are installed with sensors that detect signals from a keychain beeper. And with the simple press of a button, the Chomper Beeper will find your teeth as long as they are located within 500 yards. Amazing! Just hear what one of Diddy Dental's satisfied customers has to say about the Chomper Beeper. The other night, I couldn't find my dentures, so I pushed the button on the keychain and was able to find them in seconds. Turns out they were in my mouth the whole time. I just couldn't feel them because I had a big chunk of bread stuck over my teeth. 
Thank you, Chomper Beeper. Chomper Beepers by Diddy Dental. We're bringing dentures back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope you're doing well on your commute uh, or whatever you got going on this morning. It's got to be better than what's going on in Houston and uh, South Texas, East Texas, moving towards Louisiana. In a couple days. This is a big deal. It does not stop. What do you do when you're expecting another, whatever, 10 inches of rain? I thought it was like five feet. Oh, really? Five more feet? I guess. No, not feet. It'll be, they're, they're expecting, like some areas have got 30 inches. They're yeah. going to probably end up getting 50. And then Louisiana's looking for 10 inches of rain on top of. Unbelievable. Uh, anything they've gotten just being in the region, you're getting rain. So. Story after story. Uh, everybody's bringing out their boats now. In fact, how cool. The Cajun Navy is all over it. Louisianans are bringing out their boats to help the flood-ravaged Houston uh, citizens. That was a crazy crazy picture you showed me yesterday, Terry, with somebody standing under the water just to give you a perspective on how deep it is. Oh, and then holding their hand above the water? Yeah, Yeah. the guy's 5'8", and the water's over six foot, so you just see his hand sticking out of the water. Holy cow. Can you imagine just everything that you knew? They have all the before and after shots in Houston. Hey, this is Houston's freeway system before. Here it is after. It's just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. You showed me that one, too. It's also – isn't it amazing? It's actually just so humbling what Mother Nature can do. Just don't tick her off. (laughs) Cow, that guy's hand from his elbow up. I'll post it. It's above the water. Well, our prayers uh, continue to go out uh, to uh, really everybody um, in Texas, uh, South Texas, East Texas, and on the way to Louisiana. It is one of those moments that – will go down, I guess, again in history, right? And you, you see a lot of heroic act, actions uh, being taken today and, and throughout the last few days. In fact, today we will be speaking about heroes and kind of more heroes and politics. I'm predicting there's going to be a shortage of Harveys coming into the world. Harvey the... Babies. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't think people are going to yeah, be naming no. their babies Harvey for yeah, a while. Yeah, Katrina used to be a great name, and then people <laughs> quit using it. When was the last time you met a young person whose name was Harvey? Well, I think it was becoming... It was in vogue again. I think people were thinking that was a cute name until this weekend. Wrong. Yeah, sorry about that. It's a cute name. It's uh, It's up there. There's like three names that are really popular right now. Charlie... Uh, Harvey and Stas. Wrong. How do you say it? Stas. You're wrong. Stanislav. Stas is rhymes with boss. Stas. Stas. There you go. Stas. Cute kid. Cute kid. Uh, born in a lobby of a hospital. So that's going to be the saying from now on. Whenever he doesn't shut the door. Yeah. What were you born in a lobby? <laughs> You never could make it here on time. <laughs> That's what will happen every time. Or maybe time. that'll be his go-to excuse from now on. Oh, absolutely. Oh, forgive me. I was born in the lobby. You don't know what I've been through. <laughs> uh, we got a great show. So much to uh, talk about. Uh, we'll be getting into heroes and, and politics and really 
how we see heroes. And does it matter? Does it matter if we agree on what a hero is? Well, our our guests uh, this morning have been doing a lot of research on it, and um, they're coming up with some information that is a little startling. I mean, you want to be able to revere certain people for certain works. And even in America, we're finding out we don't agree really on what is a hero. For example, is John McCain a hero? I'd say absolutely. The man gave his life for years in a concentration camp, except now— Some some say no because he got captured. Yeah. I thought maybe you meant more (laughs) recent uh, events that happened where he He has a brain tumor. No, no, no. uh, He stood up— He took on the bill. Yeah, Yeah. the health care bill. Well, but see, but again, that's kind of where we then get so political about his career that we can't see the the hero that he is. Hmm. So— We'll talk about that. Pretty interesting uh, discussion coming up with the authors of the book, Where Have All of the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor. Pretty interesting stuff there. Plus, again, we are seeing from Houston a lot of heroes heroes and heroic acts being uh, undertaken. And, and what about the livestock? What about, what about the sewage? What about the chemical plants that are there? I mean, it's a major chemical industry. It's a major refinery area. What about gas prices? And what about President Trump heading there today? Well, well, what? Close to there. Yeah. But Dallas, where's he going? He's got to. Austin. Oh, to Austin. Then he'll fly around, I'm sure. Sure. They, you got to have the picture of the president flying over the damaged area. Looking out the window. That's essential. Right. Otherwise. With solemn face. Yeah. Otherwise, you didn't show up. And apparently, Melania will be going with president today. So um, that's, uh, that's all underway. And, uh, you know, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, of course, some empty news and some local headlines and national headlines. Terry, let's get to the national what else should we be paying attention to? So as you were saying, President Trump to visit Texas today, landing in Corpus Christi. He also visit Austin. Austin has a FEMA headquarters, and they're using that to stage FEMA. and kind of organize the uh, rescue effort. He, uh, he may return to Texas on Saturday and also visit Louisiana, where floodwaters are growing and may get worse later this week. Trump said Monday in a joint news conference with the president of Finland... To the people of Texas and Louisiana, we are 100% with you. We're praying for you. We're working closely with your leaders and officials. And I will be visiting the impact zone tomorrow to ensure that you're receiving full support and cooperation from the federal government. We pledge your full support as Texas and Louisiana battle to recover from this very devastating and historic storm. Uh, The storm moved into the Gulf of Mexico where it has regained a bit of strength with max winds at 45 miles an hour. According to meteorologists, the storm is expected to make landfall again east of Galveston, Texas, late Tuesday or early Wednesday. It will then speed up and weaken by Thursday into a depression over northern Louisiana. Meteorologists predict 50 total inches of rain in some areas by Thursday. So it's going to go get a little bit more steam and chug back on shore. And then Harvey could fall into a depression. Yeah. So what uh, what does a storm do once it's depressed? Why don't you ask Pluto? What does a planet do when That's a good point. he's depressed? Sulk in the outer reaches of the galaxy. It just, <laughs> Pluto, gets, you know, it right? just gets ugly. Uh, as, as frequent weather checkers will know, the National Weather Service signifies total rainfall on a map using an array of colors. Varying shades of green mark areas where total rainfall ranges from 
0.1 inch to 1.5 inches, while the deepest shade of red marks areas where the total rainfall is between 10 and 15 inches. Prior to Tropical Storm Harvey, the National Weather Service scale topped off at 15-plus inches of rain, but Harvey's record rainfall, which battered Texas, a coast over the weekend forced the National Weather Service to add a few new colors to its key. Hmm. Now a deep purple hue representing rainfall of 15 to 20 uh, inches, shades of mu- uh, much of southern Texas. Two lighter shades of purple were also depicted uh, for 20 to 30 inches of rain. And then there, I think there's another color for greater than 30 inches of rain, which they're going to approach here oh, wow. in the next few days. So in some areas of Houston, total rainfall last 72 hours as high as 39 inches. Some areas are expected to get up to 50, as we've been saying. So they, the National Weather Service had to go back in and adjust everything they're doing to add more colors to the uh, <laughs> To your your TV. We need fuchsia. We need more fuchsia. Over uh, yesterday, amidst all the hurricane coverage, North Korea fired three missiles towards Japan. Japanese broadcasters announced early Tuesday, um, citing uh, the the government, the missiles passed over Japan, landed in the ocean. A South Korean news agency reported citing military intelligence. North American Aerospace Defense Command, man, NORAD, uh, determined the missiles launched from North Korea did not pose a threat to North America. The White House said in a statement, all options are on the table. I'm sure what that means, but, you know, they're there. Uh, the story leaves out the part where Godzilla was attacking Japan from the other side of the oh, island so and so North Korea was just help. helping. That's really They leave cool. that part out did conveniently. They, did they hit Godzilla? <laughs> did they get him? Again, no reports. Holy cow. I mean, he's out there. Oh, boy. That's where he hangs out, right? Okay. No news means good news, though. Well, sometimes. I just wish we get more Godzilla reporting. <laughs> It terrified everyone in Japan uh, in, on this island. It's, I mean, you could see they were trying to shoot the gap. It looks like between yeah. two of the Japanese islands, and but it, the the alarms went off, sirens mm-hmm. go off that there's a missile attack. Yeah. So then, what do you do? You just they should say Godzilla has been seen in the area, but they didn't clarify that. Not to make light of the situation. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Terrifying. They, they were telling people to. Like hunker in place, not hunker, but you know what I mean. They yeah. try to, you know, shelter yeah. in place. And but what do you do? There's missiles raining down. You can't really, I mean, where do you run? Boy, what is he doing? He's just Kim, 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 Kim. His entire power base is the fact that he has these missiles. Yeah. And nobody but can stop he's him. He's going to, does he not know who he's messing with? Well, but I mean, you've got two highly reactive leaders that could yeah. start a war. But at the same time, no, <laughs> nobody wants to launch the missiles, you'd hope. Well, Kim does. Man, well, I don't think they can hear you. Can they hear me when I talk mm, through my teeth? N- no. Holy cow. And, and a piece of uh, trivial news. Yeah. Uh, those waiting to upgrade their iPhones can expect to see the new options on September 12th. New options? Yes. The Wall Street Journal reports that uh, as the date for the next Apple product unveiling is on the 12th, assuming in that case last-minute production glitches could throw off the schedule, whatever, customers should be able to order about 10 days afterwards. That's usually how it works. Mm. Uh, Apple is expected to offer update, updated versions of the iPhone 7 and the iPhone 7 Plus, usually calling them the iPhone 7S Ooh. and the 7S Plus. It's usually how they do it. Yeah. <laughs> but most eyes will be on the new iPhone 8, rumored to be an ambitious upgrade to mark the phone's 10th anniversary. In addition to the phones, Apple's also expected to unveil an upgrade uh, for the Apple Watch and Apple TV. And expect to pony up. Uh, have you heard the price for the iPhone 8? What? $10 billion. They're expecting over thousand a $1,000 a phone. Wow, that is an aggressive upgrade. Oh, come on. Really? That's what they're saying. Well, you know why? They got to pay for Tim Cook's payoff. 
Apparently, Tim Cook's making uh, CEO of Apple is now received $89 million of yeah. stock last week. Well, $89 million in stock. He's doing his job. Many, $89 million. How many billions do they have sitting in Ireland right now? Yeah. Apparently, he hit key performance targets, so they're like, we're going to give you some more stock. Hmm. And then he has to pay like half of that in taxes, but he then has $43 million in stock, which will eventually turn into tens of billions of trillions of dollars. Hmm. Are these CEOs overpaid? I don't know if you heard $89 million. How is that relative to what they made as a company? But what part of that had anything to do with Tim Cook? He's the leader. And? He set a deal with the board. They gave him you know, payment. I mean, that's <laughs> how it works. You, you make a deal. Everyone agrees. What's Tim Cook's greatest innovation? He led the company after its founder died and didn't run the thing into the ground. Okay. There you go. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so he, he didn't destroy it. It was expe- people were like, "Oh, you know, he's not going to be able to Jobs was so innovative. He was such a such genius. A genius. There's no way, leader. you know. Yeah. And he's been able to just keep growing the company. Wouldn't that be great if that was the bar that was set for everything we did? Yeah. Just don't run it into the ground oh, yeah. and you've done an excellent job. That'd be such a break. It's like yesterday in the NFL, Matthew Stafford from yeah. the Detroit Lions signs a five-year, $135 million, basically $27 million a year. He's going to get to basically be very mediocre in Detroit. Well, yeah. Well, but all he has to do is be less mediocre than the mediocre person before him. Yeah. Thank heavens for mediocrity. We've actually got a story coming up in the next hour about a government official who basically admitted to not working very hard mm. as he was butt-dialing a reporter. Hold, hold, hold it. In, in our government? Yeah, it's in a local government. Or was it, in local. A, was it in some other government? It was in North Korea. And we're not talking millions, but we're talking hundreds of thousands. It was in New York City. Really? In New York, this guy was doing this, and he got caught. But it's funny. The story how he got caught was pretty funny. So. Because he accidentally butt-dialed somebody. Yeah, and then admitted to, you know. <laughs> you all right? Sorry. Did you guys hear Tim Cook, $89 million? Yes, you've mentioned that. Oh, hold on. Hillary has something to say. Oh, that was Hillary's sympathy cough for you. I, it's a sympathy cough. I really do have a lot of sympathy for Hillary. Hmm. Our coughs, I mean. Oh, okay, good. And getting into vans. Yeah. I think I've struggled getting into a van before, too. But who hasn't? Yeah. I mean, some of those vans are really lifted. Okay. And well, she wasn't really struggling. It was more of the two guys trying to lift her semi-lifeless body into the van. It was a she, struggle part. Actually, she was asleep. There's so much that could have <laughs> happened right before that video was taken. Maybe she had just been to an all-you-can-eat buffet at Sizzler. Uh, but, have you, you ever know? done the all-you-can-eat at her Sizzler? Her toes dragging across the cement Sorry. really sold the whole thing. <laughs> They're like, you ruined my shoes. I don't even know the name of a good shoe. Gucci? They make bags. I you, know. That's what I was going to say, Gucci, yeah. but then like that's a bag. See, probably. we don't know. Yeah. Skechers. Her Skechers. You were... ruined my Skechers. <laughs> Darn you, kids. Oh, well. What do you do? Isn't that great? You know what's fun is we can always go back to Hillary Clinton's cough and dragging her into a van. That's always something that's there. It's been immortalized here on the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah. Yeah. Some wish it was more mortal. 
So it would just die. <laughs> so that joke could just die. But as long as we've got a hotkey for it, folks, it's coming back. We will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about heroes and American politics. Uh, pretty interesting insight about how we see those with the valor and exercising valor. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. are your heroes? You know, depending on who you ask, the answer can be very different. Children might look up to their parents or even movie superheroes, but if you ask someone off the streets or a politician, they might answer with a friend or a colleague. Here to talk with us about hero- heroism in the and um, in their new book, Where Have All the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor are the authors of the book, uh, Bruce Peabody and Krista Jenkins. Both are um, professors at Farley Dixon. Man, I'm having a hard morning. Farley Dickinson University, and uh, they join us today to walk us through their research and help us better understand uh, how today we view our heroes. We appreciate both of you being with us today, Bruce and Krista. Thank you for your time. We're thank very you. Happy to, be happy, here. happy to be here with you. This is this is. Uh, what an interesting time to get this book out and to and to be talking to you about the book actually um Bruce first of all why why the focus on heroes and um and kind of the review of what happened to American valor Sure so it's something we'd been thinking about for a while and uh we'd noticed that it's a term and an idea that a lot of people in at least some circles bandy about a lot but I think we were particularly interested in the question as political scientists, as, as people studying politics, how, how are heroes used, deployed by uh, political figures and, and in ways that have a uh, political value. Hmm. And because, again, uh, to, today with, uh, you know, the unrest in the United States because of Confederate statues and monuments – um, a lot of heroes are now in question and, and are actually even being used politically. Uh, what do you think, Krista? What, how, how do you define a hero? That's a great question. That was one of the things that, that we struggled with as well, um, because, uh, you know, on the one hand, it, it seems as if heroes are almost ubiquitous. Um, you know, somebody does something, you know, within the line of their, their profession or, you know, they extend a helping hand to somebody else, and oftentimes that can be elevated to the status of a hero. But then at the same time, there are all of these um, legendary heroes, the ones who have, um, you know, put themselves at risk uh, when they weren't even expected to. Um, if you think about war heroes, and then, of course, going back in time to George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, etc. So that was something that we, that we uh, you know, struggled with at the beginning. And over the course of our research, we really, I think, came up with this understanding that that there are what we would call sort of the democratic heroes, the democratizing of the of the the war hero, where it's becoming increasingly easy for people to um, achieve that status, and then you also have sort of the greatness heroes, the legendary ones, um, the, the ones from our history, and then of course the ones who um, really do extend themselves in, in such a way that they are risking you know their life or limb in order to help someone else. So. Um, it's not an easy question to answer, but I think those are the two terms that we've come up with in our research to help distinguish between the two that are often deployed 
um, by both the public, uh, the media, and political elites. So the Democratic hero, if I get this right, is is more uh, kind of the war hero, um, and then the great heroes are the ones that are kind of have, have stood the test of time over time. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think when we, we use the term democ- the, the, the democratizing trend in hero references, we're talking about um, for lack of a better term, sort of the relative ease with which yeah. that, that term is increasingly used, right? Yeah. Um, so, for example, when we were when we were writing the book, we would we would frequently come upon you know these sort of popular uh, culture references to heroes. So, for example, we once saw a bumper sticker that said, uh, "Be the designated driver, be a hero," huh. right? That that idea that um, that things like that are suddenly elevated to hero status. Interesting, yeah. And when you think about it, Bruce, I, I mean, I, I guess do we do you notice that or are we rewriting kind of our history and and even right now it seems like a great debate about who qualifies to be a hero uh, as far as far as the great the greatness heroes go sure so yeah just to add a quick gloss to uh, what Krista was saying i think for the for the kind of picture of the greatness hero it's a really long tradition right so for a lot of people if uh, who think about this idea of Great heroes goes back at least as far as ancient Greece and Achilles, something like that. I mean, those heroes were seen as you know, literally supposed to be demigods, half gods, half humans. Right. In the in the kind of American picture, I think that there is a great tradition hero. They don't have to be literal demigods, but they are these figures that are kind of larger than life. Uh, they are these figures that have you know, really meet high standards of, of character and ability some kind of extraordinary attribute. Uh, they tend to assume great risk, usually of a physical sort, and stand for some really important cause bigger than themselves. So in terms of your question about evolution, I think that the idea is it's not that these great heroes have entirely disappeared. There is, uh, there is still some you know, reference to kind of larger-than-life figures in our, in our political discourse and in the ways we talk about these things. But I think there's that picture is diluted or, or muddied a bit by a lot of these presentations of the what Krista called the democratic heroes, these folks who are or animals. I just saw a story in the Houston Chronicle today of this widely circulated image of a, a dog carrying a bag of food. Yeah. And the uh, you know it's identified as a hero. I kept on looking. Well, what was the heroic act? It seems to be that the heroic act of the dog is picking up a dog with a bag of its own food. Well, it could be survival, one might think. But in any event, um, the things have changed in part, I think, because that um, that kind of clearer picture and demanding picture of great heroism is getting washed up with these less demanding and more democratic images. Why, in the end, I guess, Krista, why and does it matter? I mean, because if all of a sudden we're blurring where almost anything can become a, like a democratic or the democratization of a hero, anything, including a dog, could become a, a hero. Um, what happens to us as a society when we uh, denigrate, I guess, this title of hero, you know, and, and spread it yeah. so thin? Well, let me let me just say that that's, that 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 um, that might be the distinction that we're making between these two types. But actually, the point of our book is to argue that that the public in general um, has actually not entirely bought into this democratizing trend in the usage of the word hero. Um, we argue through our research that it's it's really there's a disjuncture between how um, political elites and the media use the term versus how the public 
kind of resonates to that term. Hmm. And so the point that we make is that if you just look at public opinion data over time, and you also talk to people today in focus groups and sort of these in-depth interviews that we conducted, um, we find that the public continues to largely hold this notion of greatness heroism, right, that you really have to be someone exceptional, you have to stand for a cause larger than yourself, et cetera, the kind of points that Bruce raised um, in order to be a hero. Um, whereas it's the political elites and it's the media who have really um, hedged toward this more democratizing trend um, in the word's usage. Um, and we explain, you know, why we think that that's the case um, in the book. But, um, I, you know, I didn't want to leave you with the assumption yeah. that, that that's our takeaway, that everybody now is embracing this. Um, and as for the question of, of, you know, why it matters, um, you know, I, I, we, we, again, again, we raise a couple of points in the book. I mean, one of the things is that we think that when you use the term hero, it, it functions as somewhat of a, a political social socialization tool, meaning that if, if you're a hero, um, it's supposed to convey to people this sense of what it means to be um, sort of an active, informed, um, you know, citizen in our, in our democracy. And um, so we're concerned that obviously if that, if that usage gets increasingly democratized and, and sort of watered down, it means that everybody kind of thinks that all you have to really do is be a good person to be a good citizen, when in fact we think that, that there should be something more um, expected um, of people in our democracy. Hmm. Does I mean, that's, that's actually a very interesting concept, isn't it? That, um, and back to your comment about political elites and media are maybe pushing more of the democratization of it. What, what do you think is behind that? Is it, just, is it just language that we're using? Is it just the term they're using and they throw it out too lightly? Or, and why is there such a disconnect from what the public sees? I guess the public is kind of trying to hold to that, that greater hero standard. Yeah, go for it, Bruce. Sure. So, so I think I mean, we're not historians, but in, in our research, we kind of point to some periods in the 1960s, some developments for both uh, political figures, for both our leaders and for media figures, where that era started to create or exacerbate pressures, different kinds of pressures for those two groups that made the hero narrative, the hero story, hero talk, especially attractive. So in the case of politicians, we associate the 60s into the 70s with measurable distrust in our governing institutions, right? This is the era of greater uh, civil rights consciousness, but certainly an era of greater skepticism about how our institutions have uh, uh, perhaps not uh, protected our rights uh, vigorously enough. It's also an era eventually of uh, growing protest about Vietnam, uh, the Watergate uh, scandal, and uh, it's a real measurable moment for a decline in political trust that really hasn't been interrupted since. So how do heroes fit into that? Well, I think for a lot of leaders, having a hero, being able to anoint somebody as a hero, being able to pin a medal, being able to make a speech about a hero at the 4th of July, being able to flag somebody's ordinary actions as heroic in a newsletter it seems like a way to try to repair that breach, to fix the, the trust gap uh, once again. We don't think, from our research, it's been terribly effective, but it does explain the move for politicians. For, for journalists, for, for media figures, it's a little different. Uh, we, we think of today for sure, but uh, as an era of great competition, we think of the 1960s as an important turning point for kind of a growing 
uh, increasingly skeptical media, one that has a more negative dimension in a lot of the reporting. And the hero story is a pretty easily packaged uh, account that makes for a dramatic news story, a uh, seemingly easy frame to, to write a story about. So again, different kinds of pressures or incentives for these different groups to talk about heroes, uh, but those are distinct from the kind of ongoing demanding standards that we think a lot of Americans, uh, ordinary Americans have. Do you, do you see any consensus, Krista, on, on a, a modern-day hero? Is there, is there a hero that is, uh, you know, in the spotlight today that actually stands the test of time and maybe reaches the level of greatness hero? Great question. Uh, not, no one that's coming to mind. Um, Bruce may be able to help me out here, but I, I can't think of anyone that – you know, and the, the measure that I'm using for assessing whether or not somebody stands the test of time in contemporary, you know, contemporary times is, you know, if you look at, um, you know, public opinion data, if that same person is asked about uh, whether or not they're a hero, and obviously there's some difficulty in doing this because you're relying on, you know, pollsters to ask repeated questions that might be on a subject that is not entirely newsworthy, that not too many people are really interested in. But in any event, I can't think of anybody hmm. that we've that we've observed in our research that you know shows up. I guess you know Martin Luther King, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you know that that one. Uh, but other than that, I'm, I can't think of anybody else. Bruce, can you? Yeah, it was. It's so we took a look at this from a couple of different angles. But one of those angles was talking to people from different uh, generations in, in our focus groups, and there wasn't any widespread consensus there. There, there as Krista mentioned. A lot of people from these different age groups, everybody from folks uh, born after the war, the boomers, to uh, to millennials, a, a lot of people in these different age groups uh, did mention some of the civil rights uh, icons, Martin Luther King. Actually, co- folks from a couple of groups um, mentioned Muhammad Ali, but but we suspect mm-hmm. that was hmm. partially because he was in the, in the news around that time. Um, but part of what's interesting is that we think that lack of consensus over these greatness heroes really reflect some of these trends that we talked about. So, it's, you know, it's harder and harder to believe that somebody is impermeable or, or uh, great, more exceptional than the rest of us in an environment where especially media uh, figures have a pretty unrelenting negativism and, and certainly an interest in showing the uh, rise and fall of, of these figures and, and their feet of clay. Yeah. We are speaking with uh, Dr. Uh, Bruce Peabody and Dr. Krista Jenkins, both professors of political science at Farley Dickinson University in Madison, New Jersey. We are discussing their book, Where Have All the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor. We will continue this journey and uh, try to do what we can to understand uh, what makes a hero and and, uh, how we come together on the concept of uh, of heroism, discerning between the different types of heroes. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
talking heroes today with uh, Bruce Peabody and Krista Jenkins, both professors of political science at Farley Dickinson University in Madison, New Jersey. We're discussing their book, Where Have All the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor. And uh, again, thank you both for your time and being with us today. Thank you. Our pleasure. For me, um, boy, you, you've—I think—you've done a, a really good job helping us understand kind of the delineation of what how we see hero, heroism today. Democratic heroes, kind of the democratization, where really the relative ease where anybody can become a hero—a dog carrying its own food in Houston, or just you know the the, the patient surviving cancer—it it gets this feeling of. Of, uh, of of heroism, and then we get to kind of the greatness heroes, those that um, have have kind of stood more of the test of time, maybe our founding fathers, or I guess in some ways uh, some more recent ones, Martin Luther King Jr., others. Um, I, I guess there's kind of the international fair. I'm assuming does does a Gandhi, does a Mother Teresa kind of meet that? Does a Mandela meet those levels? Sure. I mean, those were names that we certainly heard uh, mentioned in the focus groups that we conducted, and then, you know, we certainly saw those names reflected in some of the public opinion data. Um, uh, Although it was interesting, um, when it came to Mother Teresa, particularly among the younger group that we spoke with, the the millennials when we had our focus groups, um, it was interesting for them to say things like, you know, even, for example, a Mother Teresa, you'll hear about you know, all of the good that she did, but then the media is also keen on pointing out, you know, how she might not have lived up to the, the image that she had. Hmm. So that was really interesting. I guess that's a weird, I guess that's part of the problem or the issue with this is we now have a media that is maybe more intrusive and maybe not allowing the veneer of heroism to stand, <laughs> like they chip away at it. I think that's true. Yeah. And that's obviously a mixed uh, alloy or a mixed blessing there. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, we that that uh, penetrating gaze and that skepticism has an effect on some of these institutions, and, and heroism is clearly in our sights. On the other hand, we get some goods from a media that is highly engaged, assertive, even aggressive, and uh, doesn't take uh, the the narratives, the stories handed to them by political figures as, uh, as, as the truth, but, but pushes on it and uh, tries to uncover the story. So we're not, I don't think, uh, I think it's fair to say uh, that Chris and I aren't yearning for an earlier golden age, but uh, we're trying to make sense of the complicated world we're in now, where it's, it sure is hard to be a, a national great hero. And we had the big debate uh, that President Trump inserted himself into about um, uh, John McCain. And is John McCain a true hero? What did did he come up in any of the research? So, yeah, I mean, that's a real that really showed us that this is a uh, live wire issue. We encountered the McCain hero matter and controversy in, in a couple of ways, right? First, it came up in the summer of 2015 when Trump, uh, then-candidate Trump, seemed to go out of his way to poke a stick at, at John McCain by, by saying, as you're, as you're intimating, that he didn't like his, uh, he preferred his heroes who weren't, uh, weren't captured, uh. a reference to yeah, McCain's entertainment yeah. during yeah. the Vietnam War. But then more recently, of course, when uh, uh, Senator McCain was diagnosed with brain cancer, a number of figures on both the left and right uh, uh, came spontaneously to 
salute uh, Senator McCain and call him a hero, seemingly recalling that flap between McCain and um, and Trump during the 2015 part of the campaign. Hmm. Does and then President Obama um, ended up giving what was it the Medal of Valor to uh, Vice President Biden? Uh, I believe it was the Medal of Valor is – I mean I guess are we redefining I – mean, it seems like the Medal of Valor was given to soldiers that were giving their lives in war and one of the highest honors you can give and maybe I'm mistaken. But I, I guess have we have we redefined it to such a point that it's um, – we've taken maybe some of the bravery, some of the cur- courage and um, and and valor out of it and made it people that just do good things. Yes, I mean I think that's that's the point that we're that we're making that you know for example the the point that you're raising about Vice President Biden um perhaps in you know previous eras he would not have received that medal um because the political elites and the media would not have necessarily recognized that as something worthy of that designation. Mm. Uh so it would be interesting to see if over time, you know, if we were able to track this if people's attitudes toward that particular you know, um, elevation of Joe Biden as a hero, you know, holds water today. And, and if it does, if it would even, you know, maintain that that level of, you know, commitment over time. Mm. And, and the context definitely matters. So by some of our measures, things like the Medal of Honor, the uh, one of the highest commendations that uh, that the government recognizes by by a lot of measures, including the rates of issuance of the Medal of Honor, we we don't find an obvious inflation. It, it's still really hard to get a medal of honor. But that's so. So I think I think it's not as though commendation for genuine valor and for these self-sacrificing deeds is entirely extinct. It's just kind of swept up and and uh, and lost in this more general celebration so just to put a you know close the circle on 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 the the medal issue while you've got the medal of honor really hard to acquire one of the examples we cite in the book is uh, president reagan issuing uh, a number of commendations less than a medal of honor for sure after the uh, uh, military um, invasion of granada in 1983 mm. uh, the pentagon awarded almost 9000 commendations for what was uh, you know, very small operation by uh, historical standards, especially since fewer than 7,000 American soldiers participated. Some commentators noted there were more commendations <laughs> than out than actual soldiers participating. <laughs> well, they had family. Come on, they had family. That's true, and, and maybe you know the occasional valorous pet. So the, yeah. one, one doesn't carrying want to the food. These sure. Absolutely. So, so is it, I guess apparently it seems to be getting easier to get uh, some of these commendations, some of these awards. It sure does. It sure does. You know, and that's certainly consistent with what we've been uh, observing. I mean, it's kind of for for many of our leaders, it's a it's a it's a cost free proposition. You 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 uh, recognize a hero. No one's going to be petty enough as Chris and I are to to question their bona bona fides, but uh, it might stick. Uh, so you think, or it might uh, at least put you in a favorable spotlight to, to recognize these folks. So it, yeah. it seems like a relatively cost free proposition. Kristen, is, Krista, is it a is it a is it kind of a human inherent human need to look for heroes? I mean, we have everything from superheroes in in comic books um, to then you know basically naming every brave act as heroic. 
uh, to then military heroes to then the general great heroes of our of our history. Is this just are humans drawn to find the stellar, you know, courageous person? I think so. Uh, if you think back to your early school days, uh, it's not uncommon for young kids to um, become, you know, socialized around this notion of there being, you know, heroes, and to, you know, be able to identify them and to, you know, seek them out, you know, as, as inspiration, as guidance, really, for how you might want to live your life. What was interesting when we did um, uh, the research, and, and particularly in, in the focus groups, but also we saw this in public opinion data, is um, a willingness of people to basically, you know, if, if they were asked, can you identify a hero today that, that has inspired you, something along those lines, we would often hear people say, um, not a public person, but somebody in their own life, my hmm. mother, my father, my aunt, uh, a grandmother, someone who endured adversity and was able to, you know, rise above it and, and has helped me become a better person. So I think that was that was rather interesting because going into this myself, I was sort of expecting people to have these kind of public personas when they think of heroes. But a lot of people really look at their own families and their own, you know, small social circles for, for inspiration. That's – yeah, please – yeah, go right ahead, Bruce. Sure. So, so in addition to the kind of psychological, um, almost uh, human aspect of, uh, of the necessity of heroism that Krista points out, we also looked at it from the perspective of kind of the – not inevitability, but the, the special functions that heroes provide politically. So for a lot of societies, not just ours, the idea of a hero is a valuable – kind of lever or, or promise or reward for getting people to do unpleasant things. I mean, historically, it's been going to war, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but it could certainly be other difficult, um, valuable projects that people don't want to contribute to, but the language and the commendation and the public honor of heroism helps them to, uh, to put, their, uh, put their lot in for. So civil rights, I think, is a good example, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a good, good point. for for everyone, but uh, certainly in the fifties and sixties, it was a good that carried the risk of violence with it. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it it is almost like it's a currency, isn't it? It's a there's there's a cachet to this ability to to lean on your courage, and then um, I guess I look at it too that boy, I kind of love the idea that people are turning maybe away from a public leader if they don't trust him, if they don't believe in institutions, and back to family. Um, do you see a disadvantage of of people turning to their own family and their own personal life to find their heroes versus having kind of the national iconic hero? I don't I, I, I don't think it really is an either or situation. I think you know I think it's obviously better when you can have both. Yeah. It's certainly wonderful to be able to say that somebody in you know very close to you has inspired you and, and helped you become a better person. Um, but I also think having these kind of you know moments where we can unite around someone that we all agree on has done amazing things and really warrants his status is is good as well. I mean, Bruce pointed out the recent example of you know John McCain and the fact that we saw this rather unusual bipartisan uh, support for him as he faces this illness and, you know, invoking the name hero or the, the, the word hero in describing him. I think that's good. I mean, we have so many instances in this country of us being divided and fractured that when we can identify somebody that we all believe kind of meets this, this criteria of being a hero, I don't think that's bad either. 
And, and what do you think? We've only got about a minute, but I'd love to hear from both of you. And Bruce, we can start with you. What do you think about the rewriting of heroes? I mean, the Robert E. Lee statues, all of the kind of Confederate leaders. Um, uh, what, what do you think about, the, I guess, the discussions about are they heroes and heroic? I guess that's good. Um, but where do you think this goes going forward? So, I mean, it's hard to know where it goes going forward. Obviously, in the, in the specific example of the Confederate statue, there's an open debate now just about kind of what to do next. I heard a really interesting idea floated yesterday that you leave some of the pedestals where the uh, Confederate uh, soldiers and uh, generals were uh, just bare uh, as a <laughs> reminder that there was something there, but uh, but certainly as a kind of prompt for, for citizens to recognize that you know, a political informed decision was made to no longer valorize these figures that were rebels against the Union and supporting uh, the cause of slavery. So uh, those are, I'm not sure that there's you know, much of a national debate on whether, there is, there is something of a national debate on whether they're heroes, but there's also a question about um, how to kind of recognize and, and uh, reconcile the the sacred space where uh, where these figures were. Right. What's going to be the role? What's going to be? What's going to fill that void? Yeah. What do you think, Krista? Final words. Well, final words. I guess I would say that the debate over you know their removal and 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 what happens is is very much I think keeping in line with with the nature of what we've done, which is really try to unpack this notion of what a hero is and the various definitions that people bring to that subject. Yeah, beautiful work. Uh, Where Have All the Heroes Gone is the name of the book, The Changing Nature of American Valor by uh, Drs. Bruce Peabody and Krista Jenkins. We appreciate both of you for your time and your insights. Uh, Really powerful. When you think about who you consider to be a hero, where do you go shopping for the hero? Do you look uh, at, you know, in the comic books, do you find your hero in your family? Uh, Or can you find a modern-day hero Powerful, powerful uh, models. And again, maybe it's getting harder and harder as the media, you know, they're maybe providing more scrutiny, more understanding, more insight into the human behind the hero. Powerful stuff. Continue with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, heroes, uh, we we classify them a lot of different ways. There's kind of that democratic and the democratization of hero where we have everybody could become a hero by overcoming cancer, over uh, taking on a difficult challenge. I guess in the end, um, what might matter more than how we categorize a hero is simply what it, what the hero helps us be. And what I look for in my hero is I want to elevate my life, right? I want to take my life to another level. And we may not ever be able to, with full scrutiny, be able to have a hero that that exemplifies everything we need everything we want, especially when you have a media pressing against it or maybe not wanting to hold up that standard. But uh, I think it's important that we find somebody. This is why I believe religion is is a very important thing where you could hold up a deity, a god, um, somebody that could hold all of the, the cards for being a great hero. 
we need somebody to look to. Because if you don't, then who do you look to? And where do you create kind of that stable belief system to move forward? So uh, find your heroes. They're somewhere and they can start just with mom and dad. They can start with an extended family member or just somebody that you you revere. Take the parts that, that really are essential to uh, to their to what they've done that's amazing and just try to live those. We don't need to find the perfect person. We can always, you know, rely to a higher power to find that better and bigger hero. That's uh, hour number one of the program. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Yes. Welcome back, friends. Happy morning to you. Uh, hopefully you're... Um, happy morning. Yeah. Like, it's morning. So be happy about it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's like it's a happy... Afternoon. I will admit it's morning, happy evening, but I'm not going to say I'll be happy about it. You're usually more of a top of the morning kind of guy. <laughs> top of the morning to you. Oh well, Julie Rose had a conversation with him, and he can't use the word top yeah. anymore. Oh, they've cornered the top market. All right. Well, what are you going to do? Nah, she did not. We've got a great show. We will be. Um, we're going to talk about men and their emotions today. <sighs> what was that, Terry? Just emotions. We you, don't have any. Yes, you do. Society has told us we're not supposed to show them. Terry. Keep them hidden. Take that ice pick and chip away at your heart and let the warm little beating monster out. Isn't that called murder when you go stabbing at your heart with an ice pick? It's a good point. It's all, it's all metaphorical. I see. So we're trying to thaw the coldness mm-hmm. of the male. And our guest is saying we think men don't have emotions, but they do. This strikes at the core of the structure of society. Men have a soft underbelly, like a porcupine. That, you get the belly part right. That once, what, that once you roll that little porcupine over, you just want to tickle that little belly. Men are people, too. Yeah. No, duh. I was reading a thing over the weekend. Masculinity is defined by what it's not. Ooh, yeah. We're huh? not soft. We're not... It, Caring and kind. We're not giving, but we are. Oh, we are. It's never really defined by what it's purporting to be. It's always, oh, I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm like, not, you know. When was the last time, Jeff, that you had a really good cry? Oh, I'm a crybaby. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I cry on the show all the time. What I are you know talking you about? I know. Uh, yeah. That, right when I asked that, I thought I should have asked it to Terry. Terry, when was the last time you broke down and had a really good cry? Ten? When I was ten, maybe? No, no, no. When they when they took your trees down in your yard, I was good. You sat there just emoting, crying like mostly <gasps> like that. Those. It's pretty cool because they had a bucket truck and yeah. they're moving the guy up through all the branches. That was pretty cool to watch. And th- you yeah. say you don't have emotion. Well, it's like you ha- were giddy. Well, yeah, but I I portray it in a very uh, socially accepted way. When you go, all right, right, so cool. <laughs> I'll always remember. Speaking of masculinity, yeah, I was a big fan of Home Improvement growing up. The show with Tim Allen, yeah, and Jill, in one episode, says that she the knew wife. she wanted to marry him 
when they were at the movies and she looked over and he was crying. And then he explained, it's because you finished my milk duds. <laughs> See, I would cry over milk duds. See, you guys, we're, we will open up your heart and your mind today. A really good milk dud when it's fresh and not rock hard, mm. it is a thing of beauty. Oh, man. You guys are so shallow. Hey, we're talking about our feelings. Oh, yeah, Emotions, sorry. Matt. Come yeah. on. I would love to have seen you at the birth of your beautiful babies because I bet you were a mess. No, actually, I was doing pretty well. The wife, not so much, but she was you know, being taken care of. Oh, man. <laughs> well, okay. We'll see what we can do there. We'll yeah, be, I, uh, I asked my wife, is there a problem? I didn't even cry when my kids were born. Is there a problem there? Did you cry on the inside? No. I was happy that it was over because that is not a happy way to enter the world. Yeah, well, imagine being the baby. Oh, exactly. So I'm like, you come, had here. It easy. come here, guy. I'm the nice parent. <laughs> I don't put you three things yeah. like that. Let me get you away from that lady. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just, and I'll give you your first bath. Right. Those are great moments. Oh, now there's, you know what? Yeah, eventually you'll have teenage kids that you can't even get to take a bath. Before, you could just put them in the little sink and wash them all up, and they just would just squirm and, oh. And now, like you said, it's Axe body spray. Now they just soak them in Axe. And it's covered up. Move on. Send them out to the just the hormone stench. Of high school. Of high school. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's move on. We've got a lot to cover today. A lot of empty news. Uh, you won't believe it. In fact, even a farmer, by the way, is um, getting in trouble. He may have sprayed Border Patrol with manure, the old manure spray. And uh, yeah, no, and Jeff's got a lot of empty news for us. Um, we're trying to stay on the best we can. The Houston story. Houston continues to receive rain uh, and flooding. And it's moving, I guess, east uh, into East Texas. Eventually, it'll make its way over over the next few days into uh, Louisiana. So, boy, again, our prayers, we can't say it enough. Our prayers are with you. Plus, if you want to donate, go find credible places to donate. The Red Cross would be a great place to start, and they'll they'll probably take and need everything they can get their hands on. So we'll we'll continue to update you there. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Houston's Attics Reservoir is expected to spill over today for the first time in history amid unprecedented rainfall and flooding in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Just as note, I'm looking on Google Maps to see where it was. It's kind of in the western it's part of the Attics? city. Yeah, A-D-D-I-C-K-S. Oh. And it's uh, it's got like what, four and a half stars, nine reviews on Google Maps? Ooh. So it might be an okay destination once all the water's out. Um, <laughs> but the Army Corps of Engineers reported homes upstream from the reservoir and uh, Barker Dam, which is also in the area, are beginning to flood. Harris County Flood Control meteorologists told Fox News that their expected spillover will dramatically affect nearby neighborhoods in the Houston Northwest Corridor. A spillover would be uncharted territory as mm. the dam spillway has not been activated in the reservoir's 70-year history. They've never had to let water out of this thing. So it's never happened, and now they're already flooded, but now they're going to have to let water out or this this thing could break. Yeah. So they're reporting the dam has been considered in critical condition for years, and concerns have emerged about the dam's control spillover actually functioning. Back to infrastructure. Yeah. 
and uh, now President Trump will be flying over the scene. The Washington Post reporting eight deaths so far from the storm. Yeah. Now, the governor and the police chief have been talking about they haven't really got out into the homes in a search and rescue type. They're, they're rescuing. They're not searching. Right. Yeah. So if someone's dead, they're not going to find yeah. them. And well, think of how many homes somebody is already dead in and they're not even going to get back to it right. for a week. Right. So we'll the number is sure to go up. Bah. They're expecting it to go up. They uh, the entire Texas National Guard is on uh, an, an active duty. I guess they're Everybody, out there. Yeah. Twelve thousand and, and all will be out there to support the recovery efforts. 20 to 40 inches of rain have already fallen in the Houston area as of mid Monday. The highest rain was thirty nine inches near Dayton, Texas. Rainfall totals could reach 50 by the end of the week. Greg Abbott said that the, uh, the governor of Texas he expects the damage incurred in the state as a result of Harvey to be horrific. And the storm finally subsides leaving behind a mess that will take years to rebuild. Boy. And they're telling everyone don't don't get impatient here. This will be quite a while to clean this all up. Yeah. This yeah. isn't going to be you know within a couple weeks. So we'll see what happens. Um, in com- completely other news have nothing to do with Texas. <clears throat> Uber. Who? Uber, the, co- the, the company oh, Uber. Oh, that company still, They yeah. finally decided on who's going to be their boss. Their new CEO. He, his What's his last name? Dara Kasrao Shahi. He's an Iranian-American. Really? Yeah. Excellent. He used to run Expedia. Yeah. So he has no experience in He's this. He's a travel guy, though. <laughs> He's coming in to, to fix the company, to fix the corporate. The culture. The, the culture. And, yeah, and maybe be more, you know, what, uh... Gender friendly. Right. They said about two months of searching, several people saying no, several people walking into their boardroom and saying this is the only way I'll do this job, and they're not agreeing with that. You know, that kind of thing was happening over the weekend. The ride service company still is grappling with the overhaul of its workplace culture, a range of legal troubles, and most recently, a bitter board dispute. So, Bitter board dispute! We'll see if the guy from Expedia can fix it. Okay. And finally, two U.S. boxing fans have filed lawsuits against TV cable provider Showtime over the quality of the live stream for the much-hyped weekend fight between really? Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. Two separate lawsuits. Filed one uh, filed in Oregon federal court by uh, Portland resident Zach Bartel and Victor Malin in uh, New York federal court seek class action status for what they allege were failures in Showtime's pay per view live stream of the match in Las Vegas. Bartle and Mon said they paid ninety nine ninety five for Showtime to watch the match. Bartel's unlawful trade practices lawsuit said that instead of being a witness to history as promotions for the fight promised. All he saw was grainy video, error screens, and buffer events, and stalls. Maul's breach of contract lawsuit says his service continually logged out, and when he was able to watch, the pictures were delayed, cutting out, or otherwise incomplete. Huh. Both are seeking jury trials. Oh, brother. Can't they just ask for their $100 back? <laughs> no, it's like, get 100 bucks. You're, you're good, right? They want a jury trial because they're gonna, they think they'll get damages? I guess. What are the, What were your damages they were not witnesses to history psychological social damages maybe they had friends over and it was embarrassing it wasn't working mm. yeah <laughs> you know what they ought to do let them get in the ring with mcgregor right loser has to fight all the people that are mad hey if you lose you still get a hundred million yeah he did but this guy didn't this guy just give him his hundred bucks back come on Okay. Well, good luck to that. Good luck to that. Uh, Jeffrey has a crazy story for us in the empty news segment of the show about a farmer who is denying, I did not spray manure on that patrol. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. Uh, Have you ever been sprayed with manure? Not this week. (laughs) It's been a while. 
So, yeah, there's this guy in Vermont who is denying charges that he sprayed liquid manure on a marked U.S. Customs and Border Protection car after confronting an agent about why he wasn't doing more to arrest people in the country illegally. Ooh. This guy has some problems. So they had a confrontation, and then the manure sprayer accidentally hit the car. There's a lot of talk about gun control, but I think we ought to be careful about who we sell these manure guns to as well. Totally. No, totally. 53-year-old Mark Johnson pleaded not guilty Thursday to state charges of disorderly conduct and simple assault. I wouldn't call that simple assault. No, that was complex assault. Of a law enforcement officer with fluids. Ooh. Have you ever assaulted somebody with fluids? (laughs) Not this week. (laughs) He declined comment afterward. The Border Patrol agent said in court documents that Johnson sprayed the car after a profanity-laced tirade August 3rd, just south of the Canadian border. Johnson said Wednesday he asked the agent why he wasn't doing more to arrest people in the U.S. illegally. Johnson said he didn't know the car was nearby when he turned on his manure spreader. Right. Yeah. Right. Can you, by the way, imagine, just put yourself in the brain of a cow right now who's sitting there thinking, okay, that guy takes my manure and puts it in (laughs) his sprayer and shoots it all over the place. All you'd have to do is let me just wander. He should be suing this guy. Yeah, exactly. The cow. Mm. Those cows. Yeah, pretty gross. um, But what are you going to do? You know? Oh, wait a minute. What's this? Uh, I'm getting breaking some breaking news. news. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I'm scary. getting word from Shik Shumway. He is live on the scene of a slow-speed chase. Ooh, let's get You've on seen, that. I mean, usually there are high-speed chases, yeah. but this is I a slow-speed slow speed chase. Like O.J. And, and it involves a turtle. Uh, Shik, what can you tell us? Thanks, Jeff. 35-year-old Aldabra Tortoise Abu is leading police in a slow-speed chase here in Okayama, Japan. The excitement started on August 1st when 121-pound Abu escaped from Shibukawa Animal Park, a maximum security facility. She's been on the run at about 0.17 miles per hour until now and has been able to survive without food and water the whole time. Zoo officials have offered a $4,500 reward for capturing the tortoise, and earlier this morning a family spotted her on a steep hill in a forest 160 feet or so from the zoo. Now, as I said, this is an extremely slow-speed chase, and I'm not sure why the police officers aren't simply walking over to Abu and apprehending her. Perhaps it has something to do with her assault charges from a few years back. We'll give you updates on this exhilarating chase as they become available. Reporting live from Okayama, Japan, this is Shik Shumway. Hmm. Wow. I mean, how, did, how do we get the budget, first of all, to send him to Japan? I don't think we did. He's just there. I think he's there. D- does he think he's going to submit his receipts and um, HR is going to yeah. reimburse him or something? Oh, or he's payroll? in for a shocker. Wow. So, okay. I mean, just – Where do we begin with that? Well, obviously it's a snapping turtle. Yeah. Because they're afraid – I mean, all I got to do is run over and just kick it over. Just tip it onto its back and you got you got her. But it sounds like she has a history there. Yeah, but she's a turtle, right? She can't hurt – she doesn't have like a viper neck. 
She mm-hmm. just can't. She can't even reach past her front leg. So That's just tip point. her over from her back leg. You got her. Just grab her tail. One point I would make is how unfair is it that they mentioned her weight in yeah. this story? That's sexist. I mean, how many times do you do you hear somebody's weight be yeah. brought into a story like this? Well. Yeah, I think it's because there's just not a lot going on in the story. I'm telling you, if they maybe if they did that more often, people wouldn't commit so many crimes because they wouldn't want their weight to be public knowledge. <laughs> 180 pound Louisa Jones. Okay, I'll never do it again. <laughs> just be quiet. <laughs> yeah, her most embarrassing moments, and then you just state all the embarrassing moments. I think what all they need to do is deploy the spike strips, Ooh, and they got yeah. that turtle. That turtle, a turtle can't go over spike strips very fast. That's true. Not a man. Well, I mean, can't do anything fast because, as yeah. you heard, that was a point one seven miles per hour chase. What's the cop doing? Like, how do you even drive that slow? I don't think. I think he's just parked. <laughs> he's just. <laughs> Did he just park ahead of the turtle and then just wait yeah. for the turtle to come to him? Yeah. And then what? The turtle just walks under the cop car. It's. Hmm. This is. This is crazy, and. Again, I appreciate Schick. I really do because we never get breaking news. But whenever it comes from Schick, a lot of people question if it's news. But you could hear him. Yeah, that that was was great. That was actually incredible. He made it all the way to Japan. I think he was there. He was already there. Yeah. He's on that tuna tour. And his – maybe his mic wasn't working or something, so he cared enough about it to phone it in. Yeah, that was good. By the way – Maybe tell them going forward, oh, we should always phone it in because that worked really well. But next time, phone in a story that's you know maybe worth chasing. No hmm. pun intended. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to sound ungrateful. That was breaking news. That was pretty cool. But you know, next time, more than a turtle, just tip it over. Seems like not a big deal. Anyway, what do I know? Well, that's what we do here on the show, folks. We bring you the latest, the greatest, everything you need to know. There is a turtle, Abu, in a slow-speed chase in Japan. Consider yourself lucky that you don't live in Japan right now. Not only are missiles flying overhead, but turtles are slowly making their way up the street. We'll continue the journey up next. What if he cries? Rick Belden will be joining us, talking to us about the male emotion and uh, and the emotions that men share and maybe don't share, but still, uh, the, but they're still feeling every day. Our goal to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Men often keep the depth and complexity of their inner lives hidden, tightly away inside of themselves. They do so well. Uh, they do it so well that it is commonly assumed by many that men are cool and calculated beings, with uh, with very few complex emotions, especially when compared to women. But nothing could be farther from the truth. And many men, no matter how proactive they may be at hiding their uh, emotions. 
they are still starving for some sort of uh, safe harbor in their harbor in their lives, somewhere where they could share what they're feeling. We've had Rick on the show before. Rick Belden is a respected explorer and chronicler of uh, psychology and the inner lives of men, and he's been writing for most of his life. Rick, thank you for being back with us. Hey, Matt, it's good to talk to you again. This is such a, I think, an important issue that we needed to have you back because it really just doesn't feel safe for men to cry and um, and to and to emote and to share our feelings. Is this, you know, what's up with that? I mean, it seems like we're in a day and age where so many things are more acceptable than they've ever been. But what about a man sharing his emotions? Well, there are there are, as you know, there are so many different aspects of this that we could dive into, and and the two that come up for me initially are, uh, first of all, I, I was thinking before the segment about the fact that I'm really starting to understand that a lot of this uh, differs from generation to generation. So I'm 59. Uh, I think for men of my generation, the issue of opening up and being vulnerable emotionally uh, and challenging oneself in that way is is a different issue in some ways than it is for a man who's in his uh, late 20s or early 30s. Um, I think that, uh, that in general, men of those uh, younger men have grown up in a time where there was somewhat more permission uh, and it was somewhat more acceptable to allow themselves to go into those spaces, although I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's completely acceptable and it's completely safe for them to do it in every situation, and it's going to vary from man to man quite a bit. Uh, which leads me to my second point. I was listening to you, uh, to, to you bantering with uh, your two uh, companions yeah. on the air earlier, and even though you were joking around, it does bring up an important point, which is that uh, it's, a, it's, it's a mistake to assume that the goal is to get every man to emote at the same level in the same way in every situation. Yeah. Uh, because we have different personalities. We have different backgrounds. Uh, we are at different stages in our lives. And so even though you guys were fooling around a little bit about it, it actually made a good point, which is that this is not a one-size-fits-all situation. I guess the same is true with with women as well. We don't we don't see a need to have all women emoting uh, the same. So why on earth would we need men to? Yeah, exactly. And I can imagine that there there might be women who are on the the, the less emotive end of the scale that yep. might feel a little like it's a little oppressive for the you know the cultural expectation for that for them to emote the way that women on the higher end of the emotive scale emote. So, yeah, it's absolutely true that these individual variations are, are equally important as one's gender. And I guess what, like when I work with uh, couples and people in communication, um, I use emotions as – it really is a sign. It's an indicator. It's a, it's a tool you can use to, to help uh, get to know them better, to understand where they are. I call it their vital signs. You can start to see because emotions are harder to to truly hide. Um, and so in a way, I guess it, it really it's it's just about trying to understand another person. But my worry or concern is, I guess, is more the cultural norms or the stereotypes of men that might either make it so they they feel like they can't share their feelings or they, um, you know, they're seen as weak if they do. Yeah, and I, I think that's an excellent point. And what it translates down to, again, is individual experience at a practical level. So, uh, you know, one of the great influencers in, in my estimation, in my own experience of, 
how open and how available a man is going to be to express what he's truly feeling in a way that's authentic for him, which you know may mean crying in certain situations, is at what point during his childhood or his boyhood or his teenage years did he realize that there were all kinds of negative incentives for him to do that, and so therefore he stopped doing it. Hmm. Um, and that is one of the one of the biggest drivers because so much of our behavior is based upon conditioning that we received as to you know what gets a positive outcome and what gets a negative outcome. And certainly for men of my generation, crying in front of other people was after a certain age, uh, depending on family situations and so forth, it was earlier or later, was going to get you a pre- pretty negative outcome, and it could be pretty forcefully negative, uh, anything from shaming to physical violence. Uh, so, uh, you know, that is at the root of a lot of this. A lot of, I think, what men might consider to be kind of their native mode around this stuff is actually not their native mode. It was a learned uh, sort of uh, conditioned model of how they should respond and, and, and what was safe. And I I agree. And I look at um, – because there are some interesting statistics too about – like attachment disorder and uh, attachment disorders going up on the rise. Um, I've even heard statistics as high as 50, 60 percent of um, some of our millennials are, are are suffering from the ability to actually be vulnerable and connect with others. So I wonder if, if um, maybe this is actually moving less from being a male-female issue to just being – you know, uh, and the ability to truly be vulnerable with other people. Well, there's certainly a lot of I, I can I certainly can see the the viability of what you're saying, and I can certainly also look at the culture uh, and see that, for example, you know, I don't know, in the last ten or fifteen years, the term whining has become very popular. Hmm. Uh, you know, as a put down for anybody that's basically even expressing a mild sort of displeasure or discomfort about something. And and that certainly would be something that would cut across gender, and you know, in, in the way that I've seen it used. It's you're you're on a really I think uh, interesting. I don't know that I'd call it a crusade. I mean, it's but it's you're just trying to open up people's minds to understand what it might be to be um, a human, really first and foremost, but a man, I guess, second. What what are some of the the things that you see as you meet with uh, male men and and groups around the country? What are you seeing? What gets in the way? Uh, what else gets in the way of us understanding the heart of one another? Uh, I think that at at the root, it's fear of being shamed and rejected. Um, I, I think that, and I can't. I'm not a woman, so I can't speak to the female experience, but. As a man, and as a man who's been in a lot of men's groups with a lot of other men, uh, I think that you know the the fear of being shamed uh, for vulnerability, the fear of feeling out of control, is is huge. That's a huge one for me. And you know, for a lot of men, uh, there's nothing that would feel more vulnerable and out of control hmm. than crying in front of somebody else. So I see this a lot in groups, uh, and, and it's interesting too, Matt, because. When a man does get that get to that point in a group, the other men get uncomfortable. <laughs> do they? they don't. They yeah. don't know what to do. Even though typically these things happen in a group after some trust has been established and everybody feels like you know there's a safety uh, zone there, but at the same time, the first time uh, a man begins to cry in a group, it's there's just a palpable awkwardness in the room because even though everybody in the room is committed to being supportive, 
we don't know what to do. And invariably, somebody's going to jump up and try to grab the tissues, and a good facilitator will, will basically motion them to sit back down. Uh, because for a lot of men, uh, especially when this is process is new and it's tentative and they're just kind of trying it out, any kind of interruption, no matter how well-intentioned, can be interpreted very easily as, okay, it's time for you to stop now. Yeah, knock that off. Yep. Isn't that interesting? Well, let me because let me ask you because you've seen the dynamic. So, but that guy, that man, might feel like he's out of control because he's emoting and and sharing his, and sharing his feelings and his stories, and others may not know what to do. But what I've seen a lot of times in group dynamic, if you just sit through it mm-hmm. and just let it kind of happen and let it be, then after. You you actually realize, hey, I survived that, and nobody died, and uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And do they not then feel more confident to do it next time? Uh, I would say <clears throat> yes uh, with some qualification, uh, and I'll speak to my case in particular because I, I know my history. Um, over time, it has become easier for me, but because there was so much – uh, well, there was so much abuse associated with crying as a boy in, in the family and also in the school system. Uh, it's still difficult for me to get to it. So it, for me, it's been an incremental process of being able to go into that space and feeling, as you said afterwards, it's like, well, that was okay. I survived that. I didn't die. I thought I was going to, but I didn't. Uh, but it's still difficult for me to get into. So I guess my point is that you know, we have we have multiple layers and levels of conditioning here, and there's a lot of social conditioning. And I think if you're talking about a man who's primarily dealing with the social conditioning, he can probably get into that comfort zone where he can get more access to that state, where he can cry and let it out and feel safe. He can probably get there sooner than somebody like me that's got the social conditioning mm-hmm. laid on top of the family conditioning. Yeah. Yeah, we are speaking with Rick Belden, uh, who is the author of the book Iron Man Family Outing, Poems About Transition into a More Conscious Manhood. And Rick, one of the things um, I think you brought up that, that may kind of be more universal is we we think we want our spouse, maybe a, a wife may think she wants her spouse to open up. And when he does, um, a lot of times we don't know what to do with all of that emotion. Is it – I mean we, we think people need to share and like you've, you've taught us, not everybody needs to share the same way. So we probably ought not have that be the goal that they're always sharing everything. Um, but do people, even women, do they, do they really know what to do if a man really does open up? And do any of us really know what to do? I, I think in general we don't. Um, I think, uh, you know, my experience and kind of reflecting on things I've read and talking to other people is that generally people, that we're, not, we're not raised and set out into the world knowing how to respond to that sort of thing. And so, you know, one of the points I made in the, the article that you mentioned at the beginning is I think it's really important whether you're a woman or a man, and if a, especially if a man around you is crying, but a woman too, is to, before you act, look into what your motivations are. You know, check in and, and find out, am I, am I primarily motivated because I actually want to comfort this person and help them out and support them? Or is there also an aspect of, like, I am really uncomfortable with this, and I would really prefer that this be done mm. <laughs> as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, because that's another way, that, because men, everybody, but men who've been conditioned to shut down, 
can detect that, even if it's kind of wrapped in a layer of, of I care about you. But if there's a feeling that this is really about making me stop, that'll shut a man down and that'll be a real negative experience. So I think it really is, uh, it's a learning curve for people. And it's, uh, it's another one of those important adult skill sets that unfortunately, uh, I think most of us just uh, don't enter the world having. Mm. You, uh, you bring up in a poem that you wrote, Tears Never Cried. It's really, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful poem. But one of the lines is, what happens to all the tears I never cried? Where did they go? Have I transformed them into something else, absorbed them into, uh, into my body somehow? Or have I been saving them up somewhere in a secret place, unseen, unknown, deep within myself? And uh, so what have you discovered, Rick, uh, about where all those tears have gone that you've never shared or cried? Well, I can tell you that in my case, uh, unfortunately still, it tends to take a pretty uh, painful, traumatic experience to to drive me into the state where I let those out. Um, When I do let them out, uh, initially it's about whatever the thing is that's going on right now, but then that kind of that kind of uh, flood of backed up stuff comes out and I'll realize, oh, this is about something that happened 20 years ago. Oh, this is something that happened when I was a kid. Um, I'll tell you a story. I, I'm actually recovering from a broken back. Oh. Uh, I had 10 fractured vertebrae last year. What? And uh, Yeah. Rick. Yeah, it's a crazy situation. And in the course of finding out about that, I actually, when I told, uh, I had two separate male friends that I'd known for one since seventh grade, once for 25 years, when I told each of them about it, I broke down and cried because it was so the whole thing was so traumatic. And I realized this morning, Matt, it's like, wow, I had never cried in 25 years since seventh grade with either one of those guys before ever. Hmm. What it took for me to get to those tears in that particular case and feel, I guess, desperate enough or broken enough to share that with two of my best friends in my life was a broken back. Wow. Well, and, and probably some Percocet. <laughs> Did it numb you enough? My recollection is not clear. <laughs> yeah, you can't uh, but, remember. But the point is, that's how, that's, for yeah. me, that's how strong that conditioning was not to show that kind of. And oh. I've been through all kinds of painful situations yeah. with them in my life, but I'd never cried before. That's what it took. You had to break your back to. Isn't that interesting? It's so symbolic, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you had to be broken to let it out. Yep. Wow. We're speaking with Rick Belden. Um, He is um, really a respected explorer and a chronicler of the psychology and inner lives of men. He has been writing for most of his life uh, and been using a creative expression, dream work, personal mythology, and listening to the body as tools for self-healing since 1989. His book, Iron Man Family Outing. Poems about transition into a more conscious manhood. Um, We're discussing it today and really discussing the ability uh, for all of us to be able to share our feelings more openly. We'll continue the journey in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We're talking about emotions and uh, the tendency that a lot of us have to either think men don't have feelings or that it's not manly enough to get those feelings out. A lot of stereotypes uh, around that for men. 
Um, and but and it's you know it, there's a history of this, and there's even a history of bullying, of oppression, of abuse, where people were made fun of for having feelings or for crying. And so joining us is Rick Belden, who is um, a respected explorer and a chronicler of the psychology and inner lives of men. He has a book, Iron Man Family Outing, poems about transition into a more conscious manhood. He sat in uh, many uh, a, a healing kind of group with men and been able to see how men go through it and process it. And we were just trying to learn from him. Rick, thank you again for being back with us. Yeah, Matt, I really appreciate the visit. This is great. This is really great. And I think, again, it's we we just we need to be more open to it. Uh, we were telling some stories in the break about how one of us had a, a friend that passed away. And, um, you know, as as maybe eighth grade boys were called into the principal's office, automatically feeling like they've done something wrong. And there's a counselor there doing whatever they can to squeeze the emotion and the feelings out of us. I guess that's what we need to be careful of, right, is to assume that everyone needs to share the same way. And if people aren't, uh, then something's wrong. Or if they share too much, something's wrong. Yeah, I would actually add in the same way at the same rate. Um, Mm. Because some people take longer uh, to get down into that space. Uh, Some people access it more quickly. Uh, Some people access it more dramatically. You know, some people are going to be more subtle in the way that they uh, that they actually demonstrate and express, and some people are going to be more prone to do it privately. Uh, it, people need different levels of, of support at different times, and so that's over the years. That's one of the things I've come to argue for, you know, most consistently when it comes to to men and emotions and support is to, again, not try to take a one side. I feel like there's a lot of pressure in, in socially right now, uh, in, at least in the media I see, for, for all men to be vulnerable and open up and emote in a very specific way. And unfortunately and predictably, that is causing a backlash, uh, which is completely unproductive. And so, again, I feel like the answer is to Hopefully at some point we, we reach a place where we're providing a nice wide spectrum of services and support for men so that they can be met where they are as individuals. Hmm. What, is, what are some of the keys that you have found um, to create a space, a safe enough space for a man or really anyone to, to be able to open up to their feelings? Well, I think that there are a couple of places where this can typically happen. Uh, I'm a big fan of men's groups uh, because uh, the experiences that I've had, the the way that those have helped me to open up, the way that they're typically structured so that you build some trust over time, you build some rapport over time, everybody learns together. Uh, one of the It's a great amplifier when you're in a group of men when another man begins to grieve or if he begins to cry or whatever emotions he's expressing very authentically – it's almost like he's working on everybody else's behalf. Hmm. Um, and a good men's group is a safe place for those sorts of things to happen. Uh, the other place, I suppose, for you know many men, mo- maybe most men, uh, is in their relationship, you know, with their partner. And uh, you know, if the partner is a is a woman, one of the mistakes a lot of men make, I think, is that they 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 try to take all of it to the woman in their life, and that puts that woman in a very uh, sort of 
a sketchy position of high responsibility uh, that where she may not have the skills, she may not have the uh, the bandwidth. And so I really think it's it's good if men can kind of spread this out across someone more than their partner, someone more than their, their spouse. Uh, unfortunately, men's groups are kind of hard to come by in a lot of parts of the country. And, um, but that doesn't mean don't look. You know, it, it's always worthwhile to, to try to get more support and try to get more support that's kind of savvy and kind of understanding. Is that, I guess, is a men's group usually facilitated by a therapist? Does it have to have a therapist or can it just have somebody that's, you know, informed as to kind of group dynamic? I think it can be either. Uh, the majority of the ones that I've been involved with were uh, facilitated by therapists, but a uh, uh, therapist facilitation doesn't guarantee a good men's group either, unfortunately. Right. Um, so I think that I think group dynamics, as you said, and understanding and some and some uh, some practical experience with that and and some capability and skillfulness with that is probably the most important thing. Talk to us about if we if we see somebody um, maybe breaking down, sharing their feelings, and it seems kind of like the first time. It seems like something new. How do we know? how to comfort, if we should comfort, you know, whether to touch or not, whether to say something or not. How do we know how to approach it? It's a, it's a very, it can be a very delicate, artful process. Uh, I, again, I would say the, really the first thing I would recommend to people is checking with your own feelings first. Uh, because I think, I think the feelings that you're having in reaction or response will tell you a lot about what might be motivating you to, to do something. Um, so if, if you can check in with your own feelings and, and you feel clear that you're actually okay with what's happening, then you can sort of take action based on that. If you check in with your own feelings and you're extremely uncomfortable yourself, uh, if it feels threatening, if it feels scary, then I think it's good to kind of give the, give the other person space and give yourself some space so to, to, to understand what's happening with you, once you understand what's happening with you, then you can make a more clear decision as to how you're going to interact with uh, the other person, the man who's crying. I would say, in my experience, it's better to err on the side of giving more space, doing less, and being the best possible witness that you can while doing anything you can silently to let that person know, I'm here I'm not judging you, and exude as much warmth as you can uh, in a non-invasive kind of way, if that if mm-hmm. any of that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by be a witness? I think that's a really powerful um, concept. Well, I think in the uh, you know in the in the way that I think of it, being a witness in these kind of situations is it's sort of a um, it's it's a way to address the the fear of being alone you know, that the, that the person who's emoting has, because it's difficult to do this stuff alone. In my mind, a witness is somebody who's going to sit there attentively, supportively, in a, in a non-interfering way. Hmm. Yeah, like, and not like, not steering the process. I'm, I'm glad, because I was, the word I was just thinking was like, not trying to engineer an outcome. Yeah, that's great. Or yeah, the pace. Yeah. Again, pace is so important. You really have to let these things, to the best of your ability, within your own comfort zone, let the person's process unravel, because these processes have a life of their own. And so, and they have their own pace, and they have their own 
kind of time span and everything. And I, my experience is, this, is if you can be a good witness, as I said, and sit there supportively, attentively, in a non-interfering, non-steering way, as you said, the process will finish itself. And there will be a moment where it becomes clear to you, either you'll get some eye contact or the body language will change. And then you'll know now it's okay for me to move a little closer. Mm -hmm. As you move in a little closer, you just keep checking in. Everything you do, just keep checking in. Watch him, watch his eyes, watch his body language. Is he okay with what I'm doing? If not, back it up. And how powerful, the word witness is so powerful because then this person has actually done it in front of somebody and it's been seen. And exactly. it's kind of that namaste idea that I see you. So now you're actually being seen in your real emotion, and that's when they really need to know that they're accepted, loved, and cared for. Yes. And and the one thing I would add, too, is, you know, in the witness role is, like, you may, did, may need to do some processing yourself after it's over. Yeah. Because this may have brought up some things for you that you're – you may be a little stirred up. Um, and and so you may to need to you may need some space, you know, yeah. in the aftermath yourself, so that you can understand what was happening for you, because it's not just happening for him; it's happening for you and in you at the same time. Powerful, powerful stuff. Well, Rick, we appreciate you and your great work. Um, just opening our minds up to to what is potentially. You know, such a core thing. You wonder if all these feelings get stuffed down deeper and deeper and deeper, do they eventually just have to blow up uh, and come out in another way, sometimes an uglier way? And maybe that's why we see so many extreme uh, acts out there, just people that have never been heard, their feelings have never been understood, so they act out in other ways. Rick Belden is his name. His book, Iron Man Family Outing, Poems About Transition into a More Conscious Manhood. Doing what we can, folks, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143. Well, if you've ever been a a parent that uh, tries to get your kids to answer you through text... You may have a new tool, folks. The The app is called Reply ASAP. And uh, what it does is as a parent, you can send your kid a text and then an alarm sounds on their screen. The app takes over your child's uh, screen and forces the teen to respond to the parent's text before they can re-engage and use their phone. So how much time do they have? Because, you know, sometimes you have legitimate purpose or reasons for not responding immediately. Sure. So how much time are these kids given to respond? I think it just keeps going off. The alarm keeps sounding. And you've got to address the phone. And it might just be you might have to just text back. Hold on. I'm talking to my girlfriend. I don't think this is a great way to improve your relationship with your kids. It's not, except if you haven't had a teenager yet, a lot of times they just don't answer you. So you're like, when are you going to be home? Nothing. Right, and then but, you ask him, so what are you doing? See, you're thinking as an adult who's not answering because you're in an important meeting. But they're a 15-year-old kid. Oh, they have nothing to do. They've got nothing going on. And they, they get every other text. Oh, yeah. They're texting with all their friends. They just have reprioritized you. So now this just moves you to the top of the list. And they better answer or they can't do anything else on their phone. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pretty cool idea. It will, like you said, it's going to tick some people off. 
Uh, yeah. But that's just parenting, parenting 101. That's mm. what we try to do here on the show, give you the tools and the keys, the, the things you need to make it work. The app is called Reply ASAP, and uh, it all started with a dad tired of his son that wasn't responding. Hmm. Interesting innovations. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.